coming up on this episode of the podcast Under the Stairs, we continue our look at the Teapot's Summer Top 10 Shows, looking at the Top 10 Horror Movies of the 1970s, and this week it's 1973. This, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be an action-packed show with some of the biggest names in 70s horror. But before we get to that, and my guest, Bo Ransdell, it's year four, motherfuckers, and you know what that means? This time, it's war. Warning. The podcast under the stairs is not safe for work. We'll feature movie spoilers and language which most listeners may find offensive. Brought to you in conjunction with Legion Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast Under the Stairs. This is episode 116. I'm your host Duncan McLeish and welcome to the show. On episode 116 we continue the Teapot's top 10. Oh my god, this is the top 10 70s horror movies of all time as selected by the podcast Under the Stairs. We're going year by year. 10 movies each year and we're using Noah's Ark rules which means that two movies from every year are represented on the final list. Up this week, it's 1973. I'll be joined momentarily with my guest, Mr. Bo Ransdell. There is so much stuff going on, ladies and gentlemen, and this episode, which is already recorded, runs long. So I am going to jump right out just now, nice and short, at the start. When I return after promos for shows that I love, I'm going to be joined by Bo Ransdell. It's time to get down and dirty with 1973. I'm going to be right back right after this. Hello, I'm Paul Blimey and I'm your host on the Trilogy of Terror podcast. Each month I'll look at one director and talk about three of their horror movies. Kicking things off in episode one with Lamberto Bava, the man who brought us demons. Now, the horror films might not always be scary or even good, but well, if that happens, what movie and pizza night isn't all the better for a bit of extra cheese? Come and check out the show at gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com or find it on iTunes and Stitcher. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies. Almost midnight. Enough time for one more story. They try to kill us. You ungodly warlock. But we just won't stay dead. What's the matter? You can't hold your liquor, huh? The Midnight Horror Show. The internet's goriest and raunchiest horror podcast since 2008. Now live every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time at tmhsradio.com. Listen on your mobile device with the TuneIn app, search TMHS Radio, or download us at iTunes, Podomatic, or the TMHS Radio page. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk here. 
thing about a shark is him. Lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. Seventies trundle on. When will this end? Never, never. Well, it will end after ten weeks. Um, and this is week four, nineteen seventy-three, uh, making his return. It feels like I only spoke to him just last week, but it was actually two weeks ago. Um, joining us for the year that he really wanted. This was, you know, Duncan. I'm just saying, if this is what we're doing, I want nineteen seventy-three. Bo, you can't have nineteen seventy-three. We do random selection here. It's going to be random. No, but I want nineteen seventy-three. Well, I'm sorry, I can't help you there, Bo. Press the button, what comes up first for Bo? 1973. Hmm. Feels like a conspiracy. That's all I'm saying. Uh, my guest at this time, I've mentioned his name twice already, which means if I mention it a third time, very much like Beetlejuice, he will appear. So I'm going to hold off. He is uh, he is the host of the Hero Hero Ghost Show. He is uh, one of the hosts of Duncan and Blank go to Twin Peaks because if I mention it he's going to arrive so we're going to hold back on that he does the horror hangover on Legion podcast he does the shortcast and he is the 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 grand poobah <laughs> of Legion podcast network is of course the fantastic Bo Ransdell how you doing sir it's showtime <laughs> um yeah hey man uh I'm great it's good to be here uh the year of my birth, Duncan, 1973. That's why it's so dear to me. Oh, the year uh, that the horror began. Is that, is that what we're saying? In, in, <laughs> in many ways, yes. That works on several levels. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you're like a mammoth over here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and and so like we, we got to do 71, mm-hmm. uh, which was, was a lot of fun. Yes. I think. 73 has more heavy hitters. I think there's yeah. Oh, I think there's some, you know, Rocky versus Mr. T action. <laughs> I think this is technically the first year that I have done in this run where I can legitimately say there are five powerhouses of horror cinema, like pure powerhouses that on any given day any of of those five could make, you know, the, the top two spots I feel I'd like watching back through yeah. them I was actually I was getting to the stage where I was like that you know what happened in 73 <laughs> everyone was just like that right we better you know can we step up our game this year can we just give can we just make classics this year is that what we're going to do we are well gonna I do think that. everyone cool. saw everyone saw the devils mm-hmm. and was like the 
fucking balls on that <laughs> the movie. Fucking balls on this guy. And and decided that they were gonna throw a little balls into their own films. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and uh and and what came out was a bunch of really great movies <laughs> all in the same year. Yeah, it's, uh, it's surprising. Um, weird um sort of link um, that I've noticed a, a little uh, a little um what would we say coincidence that uh, one of the movies here was directed by a director on the previous list um and uh, one of the movies we're going to talk about is basically it stars the same um, antagonist in a kind of really likable role where he's basically murdering people in a theme or fashion uh, which could be linked to one of the previous discussions we had. I'm being very aloof here. I don't know why because if you, yeah, you are being up. a little aloof. I mean, we can <laughs> we can just say it, Vincent Price. Man. Yeah, we Vincent got Price. Vincent Price to talk about. Yeah. So um, on this on this particular episode, 1973, we have. Ooh, get ready, ladies and gents. We're going to be talking about The Exorcist, The Legend of Hell House, The Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural, Sisters, The Crazies, Scream Blackula, Scream Theatre of Blood, and Torso. Uh, so we, we are really... We are in this position where not only, not only do we have some... What we would be classed as auteurs of cinema, not just like horror cinema, cinema making their appearances. We we finally have the appearance of Brian De Palma, who who's finally shown up in the 70s run. This will not be the last time we see him before the 70s uh, run is finished. Uh, and George A. Romero makes his debut on, once again, not the only time we'll be discussing a George A. Romero over the next shows in the 1970s. It's, it's, it's quite incredible, actually, like, the... Not only the level of how, you know, we, we spoke before, like, in 71, there's almost this, like, noticeable push in a direction of, right, well, you know, we've done all this Hammer stuff, we've done all this kind of cheesy monster movie stuff and all the rest in the past, and they were great, people loved them, and we've done Psycho, and we've done all that stuff, and they were great, and everyone loved that, and Hitchcock's huge, and we loved that as well, but now, now we're going to give you a new idea of what horror is, what terror is. Um, and in a decade that essentially births the the blockbuster, um, the summer blockbuster movie, we are already getting the templates of that in advance of that movie coming out because some of these movies were big hits at the cinema. Not necessarily what we would class as summer blockbuster ones, but in the case of The Exorcist, um, it is, and I've read a weird statistic about this one, this is technically, if you adjust for inflation, Warner Brothers' highest grossing film ever. Um, and Warner Brothers ain't no slouch of a studio. You know what I mean? That's one of the big ones. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah. WB ain't nothing to fuck with. <laughs> Which I'm fairly sure we've done a Wu Tang joke once before when you were on this. So we're just repeating ourselves. This is exactly, this is just a carbon copy in 1971, really. We're just changing things out. When we get to the Exorcist, we'll blood, the fucking balls on this guy. Um, all the way through that. And then I'm fairly sure we'll do a guitar. Um, you're gonna get your, you're gonna get all the greatest Duncan and Bo hits on this show. But yeah, this is an incredible year for horror. And once again, every year, pretty much in the seventies, uh, we start to see things move in a direction of really powerful, distinct visionaries bringing their ideas of terror to the screen. Uh, so instead of following a kind of cookie cutter 
carbon copy of of what was scaring people before. You get people experimenting with with the dynamics of fear, and um, which is in itself wholly fascinating and wholly interesting. So yeah, we, we we have a we have a lot of movies to talk about, and I'm going to be honest with you, Bo. Um, like anyone at home, maybe. Well, I know where they're going. I don't think you do on this episode because me and Bo have been speaking pretty much since we recorded the 1971 episode, and I think both of us will agree on one movie. I do not think we will agree on the second movie, and I think me and you are fairly. Uh, in the past, I've been like that. You know, I'm fairly open to having my mind changed when we come to the second movie. It's going to take, like, an act of God to make me change my mind. And I'm not saying that you don't have those abilities, Bo. I, like, I've known you long enough that I know that you're graced with benevolent powers. Uh, holy powers. Uh, unto, you know, some people have called you, like, a, a modern Christ. Um, I've certainly... It's been said, yeah. I, I've certainly, in reference to your name, said, oh, Jesus Christ, many, many, many times. And I'm sure that's a compliment. Um, no, but, thou shalt not take my name in vain, <laughs> So, so, yeah, it's, it's going to be... This might be the first episode where there is out-and-out um, disagreement instead of the, the kind of harmonious discussions that I've had on the previous shows. Yeah, I felt like in 71 in particular, we, we landed in the same place. Like, both of us found uh, new loves, I would say. Yeah. Uh, movies that were surprisingly special to us, uh, but but the top two felt good. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, definitely. One of us is not going to feel great about this. <laughs> That's okay. That's part of the game. I that understand part of that. The game. As it's part of the, the design of this show was to, on some level, organise conflict. And um, it has been fairly sedate thus far. Um, and yeah, we're just we're, we're almost at the halfway point of these shows that I kind of feel like some, some uh, heated discussion is maybe required in order to keep the this is what you do like when you're when you're making anything any like mixtape a horror movie whatever at the halfway mark give them a scare and that scare is likely to come on this episode um so yeah like anyone who has been checking out this series of shows thus far uh, will know that we have basically two segments as part of uh, these top 10 countdowns the first segment, myself and Bo will do many reviews of each of these movies. Uh, we will focus on their importance to us, but their importance to cinema, some uh, trivia facts, uh, stand-up performances, maybe chat about the, a bit about the directors. Um, all those discussions, you know, to a lesser degree on some movies, more on others, where, where the, the topics take us. Um, and then we will take a break, and when we come back in our second half... Uh, we will whittle them down to two movies to carry forward to the final round table uh, and the final top 10 of 70s horror movies. So, Bo, are you ready? Are you ready to just do this? Oh, man. <laughs> I am. Like, I'm all hopped up on uh, co uh, coffee. I'm going <laughs> to say cocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're giving away uh, your hand, Bo. You're giving away your which hand. I know. Uh, so... Yeah, no, I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm ready to do battle. And also to like I got I got some hometown favorites on this list that I just want to talk about. Yeah. So yeah. uh I'm very, very excited to do so. So yeah, 
let's mm, let's do this <laughs> right then uh, this is one of these ones where i kind of feel like almost anywhere that i land on the list is you know is going to be something that's going to give us a, a rich and entertaining conversation and with that in mind we might as well we might as well just take the plunge straight away and talk about a movie which has been reviewed twice on the podcast under the stairs um it's the wicker man let's just <laughs> heavy hitter all right um, yeah right <laughs> off the bat let's do it let's just do it so uh, yeah so it's been previously discussed twice on the show once reviewed with the baz last christmas we did that, and then in the very first year of the podcast, Under the Stairs, as part of the top 10 British horror movies of all time, <laughs> um, The Wicker Man appeared there. Surprise, surprise. Uh, directed by Robin Hardy, starring Edward Woodward, Christopher Lee, Diane Cliento, I think that's how you pronounce that, Brett Eklund, Ingrid Pitt, Leslie Kemp. Uh, synopsis is listed on IMDb. A police sergeant is sent to a Scottish island village in search of a missing girl whom the Thamesfolk claim never existed. Stranger still are the rites that take place there. Now, Bo, this, I feel that we, we did talk about this movie, but we didn't review this movie. Me and you discussed this movie as part of another top 10 series. Uh, we did the top 10 best and worst horror remakes and at number one we spoke about The Thing being the, the best horror remake of all time and we also talked about The Wicker Man being the worst horror remake of all time that is the Nicolas Cage one um, those were my picks and we, we chatted briefly about what made the original this movie such a fascinating movie um, but we're going to have to do it again so <laughs> be prepared to rehash the same points you've already said on the show it's been a couple of years people might have uh, for forgotten about them um yeah what do you think of the wicker man uh i mean the wicker man is an amazing film it is uh it, it's filled with great performances mm -hmm. um edward woodward is maybe i mean it's it's such a film of its time yeah, you know, because that is a movie very much about uh, the, you know, the overthrowing of the old guard and old ways for the new. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, that of you know pagan wicker men and worshiping the sun or whatever the fuck. Um, <laughs> but it's not the point. Uh, but it like the journey to the this island where it's just this very insulated society where nothing is quite what it seems it's one of those things where it it's uh an, another film uh on this list is is very much like this where it's a, w like a central gag yeah you know it is what is going on on this island and what is edward woodward's role in that and then when you get the payoff, it's like, well, they stuck the landing. That was a great punchline. Yeah. And and there again, another film on this list, same kind of thing. Yeah. It's it's all about a central gag, and I think that um, that is the good and bad of the Wicker Man is that it's very focused. It's you're very much into uh, Woodward's character throughout the film. Um, I got to tell you, you know, I've talked about this before on other shows, but. Uh, Man, the the little folk song breakdown in the middle of this movie uh, <laughs> kind of throws the brakes on things for me, where I'm just like, oh, let's get through this. Let's get to the cool shit. Um, yeah, I don't need the Foggy Mountain breakdown. 
<laughs> in the Wicker Fog- Man. The Foggy Man breakdown. <laughs> and uh, but like that's my biggest knock against the film is that there's one scene I'm not crazy about, and the rest of it is kind of miraculously perfect. Um, you know, it's it, it it man. I mean, The Wicker Man is just one of those movies that you'll never forget the end of it. You'll never forget the first time you saw it. Uh, if you can be surprised by it, all the all the better. Uh, even if you're not, it's still like the. This is a movie that was spoiled for me well in advance of seeing it, and but seeing it was still remarkable. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah. So it's yeah, it's a fantastic film. Yeah, I think it, what what it's like you saying about sticking the land and um, that ending, even if it's spoiled to you, still has dramatic effect purely because of Woodward's performance because he looks genuinely terrified. Um, and you know, is trying to desperately, desperately, um, kind of pray for his, for his God, to to either to either save him or or ultimately, um, you know, inflict some sort of justice on these people, um, and his his calls are met out with nothing really. <laughs> surprise, surprise, um. And that's me just injecting some of my uh, my religious beliefs in there. Uh, sure, sure. Had he prayed to Satan, I'm only joking. Um, yeah, it's, I think what gets me about the Wicker Man, and I'm, I am pretty much on point with you. Um, I don't mind the the, the kind of the, the musical aspects. Robin Hardy himself has many times, even though he was a bit of a madman. Um, said that he always looked upon the movie as being more of a kind of musical you're an insane man but then again we're going to talk about the exorcist later on and william friedkin says that he directed it as a drama <laughs> family drama yeah sure you sure, did yeah. sure you did freaking yeah <laughs> it's like the bit where that head twisted right round. yeah sure you did um but you know it's, it's this idea of um with the wicker man in particular it's this this idea of the journey itself and the the kind of growing apprehension towards the end where you realise that very much like uh, Sergeant Howie's character all the way throughout the movie you are guessing as to what is happening and the ultimate reveal, the ultimate end journey, the end part of the journey is probably the last thing you would have thought about if you were that character when you arrived on the island um, and you know the, the way the way we journey through with them is, is purely sold by by Woodward's performance but you're correct like Ingrid Pitt Brett Eklund and Christopher Lee just just as a, a few of the characters that are phenomenal I mean this movie um, Christopher Lee agreed to do it for nothing you know he, he, he didn't didn't do anything he actually paid for all the press for the movie out of his own pocket because he personally felt this was going to be the movie that shook off the the stereotype of of Dracula that he'd been carrying around with him since you know the 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 very early sixties, kind of late fifties, early sixties. He kind of felt that this was going to be his opportunity. This was going to be his big big break. And I've said it before. I think it's that it's the best Christopher Lee performance. I think um, the movie's you know absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it has aged and it has dated. And yeah, choices to. Especially when you know the movie really well, if you've seen it a few times, that musical section in the middle 
it, it does really slow. It slows the tempo of the movie and down dramatically. Um, and that's obviously that's never really going to change. But you know that when you get through that, you got a whole gold mine at the end of, of kind of fantastic cinema to get through. So it is it is a it is a pretty phenomenal movie. Um, I mean, Robin Hardy didn't really do much in the way of of directing after this. I think he only did two movies, and one of them was the sequel to The Wicker Man, which was an abomination. <laughs> it was a, an affront. I never saw him. it. Yeah. Oh, it's so bad. I heard it was bad, and I I just stayed away. I didn't yeah. want to. Yeah. Good seeing of shit. Yeah. Uh, never never do that. Never never even out of curiosity do that. Is a is a terrible movie that. I, I don't even know why anyone agreed. I don't know why he agreed to do it. I don't know why Christopher Lee even agreed to do it. Um, out with the fact that Lee, you know, he said it was his favourite role and Lord Summerhill was his favourite character he'd ever played. Um, but yeah, I don't why. I don't know. It's, it's whole, wholly confusing why why it happened. But we we're always safe in the knowledge that you know this movie exists uh, in the form that it does. And you know what's really weird is like back in the day you used to get these double bills. Uh, of movies that you could go and see and The Wicker Man was originally double billed up with another movie on this list uh, <laughs> Don't Look Now which we're going to talk about later on I'm just thinking how fucked your head must have been coming out of the cinema after seeing The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now and double billed back to back Right, yeah, you just walk out of that theatre dazed <laughs> believing that nothing means anything <laughs> it's just an ability to trust your eyes in anything you know it just uh it was a different time though it was a different time but that yeah the wicker man oh one of the heavy hitters on the list um let's let's change pace let's change pace let's let's lighten the mood away from people being burned to death um, and let's go to another movie that was discussed really recently on the podcast under stairs turns out um, I like 1973, Bo, because there's quite a few movies on here that I have done reviews before of. Uh, this one was reviewed recently with The Baz. It's Torso, directed by the fantastic Sergio Martino, um, who also directed All the Colours of the Dark, which I believe Kiss the Goat just put out an episode reviewing that, and I've still to check it out, but, you know, I can't wait to hear what they say about it, because I love me some Kiss the Goat. I love me some Sergio Martino and I love me some All the Colours of the Dark Bowl. So, yeah, I mean, that just sounds like my dream podcast right there. It does indeed. It does indeed. Uh, yeah, um, he also directed The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Um, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, which was discussed on in a previous episode of that podcast. Um, and one of the great titles in movie history. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, a great title. It is a mouthful. Um, and it, it, it speaks very much to the, the, the directors that when Fulci went to direct The Black Cat, you know, his version of The Black Cat is just called the Black Cat. <laughs> Fucci's like, I'm fucking around. Let's get this movie done. I've got another 17 to make this year. Come on! Um, so, that's... Uh, he also did The Case of the Scorpion's Tale and my one of my personal favourite titles of all time, A Man Called Blade. Yeah, that's Just pretty good. I, I would want to see that movie if I knew it's nothing about it. A Wesley Snipe story. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been on black. Which is not the same movie, but it's a Wesley Snipes line, so I get away with it. Um, yep. Yep. Still counts. <laughs> Still counts. So yeah, Torso is technically um, Martino's last giallo 
Um, and the run that he did, he did, I think it's four or five in, in like a period of like three years. Because uh, this is what they did at the time. I want to say it was four and Torso was his final one. Torso is probably the one that has the biggest impact in that the whole second half of this movie is the template of what a slasher movie is in America. It's a masked intruder um, stalking kind of co-ed girls who are all in a house. Yeah, discovering bodies and yep. the cat and mouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty much the template for it. The first half is very much that kind of... It fits very much into the Jallo box of, of how to make a movie, but the second half feels like something very different. It's a it's a wholly aggressive movie. <laughs> like, really nasty, nasty piece of work movie. Um, I think it speaks more to the frustrations of Martino as a director at the time. I think he was kind of done with doing these movies. Um, and, you know, this was his, his, he knew he was going to wait to do different things after this and I think that's why you get that. Uh, the movie stars Susie Kendall, Tina Armont, uh, Luke Miranda, John Richardson and Roberto Biasco. Uh, synopsis is, someone is strangling coeds in Perugia. The only clue is that the killer owns a red and black scarf and the police are stumped. American exchange student Jane and her friends decide to take a break from classes by going up to Danielle's uncle's villa in the country. Unfortunately, the, the killer decides to follow and the women begin suffering rapid attrition problems. Uh, yeah, I think I said with Baz at the time, it's a terrible synopsis. Um, but it, it kind of ticks the points. Uh, really, we have a killer who's... We could just say it's a killer of strangling co-eds and that would have been enough. Um, yeah, I, I really, really like this movie. I know that Baz, of the, of the three... Uh, Jally that he saw as part of the Jally show. This was the only one he enjoyed um, and I get the feeling he only enjoyed it because there was a lot of titties in it. A lot of boobage, a lot of naked ladies, a lot of 70s bush and the Baz was happy. Uh, and the other movies there was none of that so the Baz was less happy. Um, I think it's, it's a really interesting movie in that like I say Martino had a bit of a sleazier side. He, he, directed some of the more um, kind of cosmopolitan jallos. They were all very grand and, you know, everything was like, it was all mansions and large houses and, you know, lots of travel and all the rest. Um, and there was these huge fields and they were always shot beautifully. And in this movie, it's still shot beautifully, but he really, very much like Argento gets more violent as time goes on. Um, it would appear that Martino reached there first um, and I don't know if it's because he just saw the writing on the wall or if he genuinely you know had had enough that you know he wanted to do something a bit vicious as his swan song to leave it but I think it's I think it's a really 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 good movie I think there there is some slight pacing issues at the start and there is a bit of a I will suspend my disbelief of, of a character who finds dead bodies and then just you know, they're all just lying around the house and I'll just sit here for a while whilst I know the killer's not outside. Um, <laughs> there's a bit of that, which is a bit, you know... Yeah. Mm, but it does have one of my favourite moments in a Jalo movie ever, and it's this... It's her wiggling the key out from the door with a bit of paper under the door. Oh, yeah, that's... 
That's it's, great. It's so, so good. And she thinks she's getting out and the key pops out and it doesn't land on the bit of paper. And then you see the glove killer lift it and move it onto the paper. So she thinks she's pulled a fast one, but the audience knows she's fucked. Uh, for lack of a better word. Um, had you seen Torso before? And if so, um, what was it like coming back to it? I had not seen this before oh. because of my uh, now somewhat infamous bear-related uh, distrust of the giallo uh, subgenre. <laughs> the killer's or, a beer. Or le- well, <laughs> lack thereof. That's what was keeping me away. And uh, thanks to Darren for fixing that because <laughs> so many beers. So many oh, it was glorious. Um, and I want to see all of those movies. Uh, <laughs> I think Cat and Nine Bears would be great. I just, um, imagine, I just imagine you making a pitch to some Hollywood studio. Uh, going like that, right? Now bear with me. Remakes are in. Our gentle. Bear with me. <laughs> bear with. <laughs> um, you're doing the noises every time you see it. You're like, right? Just bear with me. The hands got like claws. This. They're like, oh, this guy's a bit strange. You're like, uh-huh. remakes are in just now, and I'm just saying that riding the curve of populism towards Italian cinema that we have right now in the horror genre, and the fact that Argento's a household name. I want to remake Tenebrae. Now, listen to me. I want to remake it and that the ultimate reveal is the killer's a bear. And the, the, the execs are like, what? You're like, no, 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 you're not listening to me. Tenebrae. That's the name of the movie. Yep. Tenebrae. Yep. He's a killer bear. He's a killer bear that wrote a book that no one wanted to read. It was just, in fairness, it was a terribly written book with a lot of kind of... Rrr, yeah, and like, it was mostly honey-focused, which <laughs> there's just such a small minority of readers. Do you think he did the... the, the do you think he wrote the Wicker Man remake? Yeah, oh, for sure. The bees! Like, the, <laughs> that's one of, like, the bear's mortal enemies. Because <laughs> there is an unhealthy fascination with bees in that fucking movie. Uh-huh. And honey and, and hives and shit. yeah. For sure, that is probably uh, bear scripted, for almost <laughs> almost positively. Cool written the beer, um, but yeah. Uh-huh. So um, so you're on a bit like the last time I Paul had you. Paul Thomas Berndinson. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> oh my god! Right, so the last Mar Bear Scorsese. Mar Bear Scorsese. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Oh, I want to see them all. Um, Steven Spielberg. Steve- <laughs> all right, that's it. Close Encounters of the Fur Kind. Is that what you're saying? Oh, <laughs> shit. Claws. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the greatest thing ever. Oh, my God. Oh. Oh, oh I wasn't man. ready for that. Wasn't ready for that. Honeyland Split- Express. Oh, it's right. I know. <laughs> Enough. No more bears. All right. But all right. So I hadn't seen Torso because of all the bear stuff, and <laughs> um, but uh, and and you're right. Like the first half of it, I was like, oh, it's another uh, Jelly film, and I've been kind of into that lately. Mm-hmm. So great, and uh, it's it's real graphic. It's torso is real sorted too like yes. torso's a little naughty mm-hmm. uh like you said all the all the boobies boobies 
Yep. Oh, I almost said boobage, and I was like, what am I in like 1984? <laughs> um, so sorry. Um, but yeah, because of all the boobies. And so it feels a little soft core-ish. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so there was part of me that was like, uh, you know, this is one of the things that sometimes I feel uncomfortable uh, about in horror, which is using violence and, and titillation uh, in, in such a way. Um, but this movie is kind of unabashedly that. Yeah. And it's hard to fault the movie for being in a weird way, like you said, this prototype to a slasher movie, because the second half of, of this is very much a slasher. Yeah. Um, like when they do the reveal of the killer, it's like, ah, well, that's no surprise. It's the one character that was around <laughs> that, that, that isn't was dead already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when it's like, haha, it's me, your old pal, the teacher, it's like, well, of course. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, all the stuff that, you know, the kind of cat and mouse stuff in the house, uh, you're right. Like they were, why does she stay? Only God knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, if the payoff is nothing but that scene that you talk about with the key, that is one of the most terrifying moments I've seen in a movie recently. And we've been watching a lot of weird movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but that scene sticks out. I mean, that in my mind, that is a classic moment in horror history. Uh, and I can't believe I'd never even kind of seen it ripped off. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I'm already stealing it. Like I, I started, <laughs> I started a new script, Duncan, just to steal that. <laughs> I don't have characters or a story, just that scene, and just I'm gonna steal it. Just a key and a newspaper. Um, but it's, it's, I think the thing is as well, it's like the like she's so hopelessly trapped, and this is the beginning of her fighting back. You know, this is her starting to use her wits. This is her going to outsmart the killer, um, and like. It's, it's such a movie, to, like in any other movie, this would be successful first time and she wouldn't be discovered or anything. But Martino just makes a deliberate point of, and because it's is that <clears throat> it's that POV thing as well with the you know the glove, you always the gloves, you know, um, and that's what we, we we know that from as soon as you see the gloves, we know it's the, something bad's going to happen. The killer's there, uh, and the fact that the killer does it because the killer just wants to give her that little bit of hope. No, he can he can come in if he wants, but no, he wants her just to have well, that little bit of hope. And also, she's not a doll yet. Yeah, uh, <laughs> in his eyes. And when he finally explains his particular brand of crazy, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Yeah, I yep. mean it's it, it, it's a good like oh you were screwed up from childhood. I get it. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, Torso's a great movie. It's a. a Again, one of those I had never seen because I just I, I didn't think I was into uh, Gialli. And now that I've seen uh, some that have convinced me otherwise, um, I'm kind of discovering all these gems. And it, it's really satisfying. Yeah, I, I'm already saying just now that I can see somewhere before the year is out, myself, yourself, and uh, a, a certain Richard Glenn Smith on the podcast Under the Stairs where me and Richard both pick one um, 
Jally that you have not seen that we recommend you see on that show and we all review oh yeah that'd be great yeah. I, I would absolutely love to do that I, I know that Richard listens to these from time to time um, and uh, yeah I, I, I imagine he will be down with that I'm due to have him back on the show anyway so I think that'll be a ton of fun right uh, let's let's change pace again I'd never heard of this movie before I quite frankly thought you were a madman for putting this on because of that Bo has skipped out some really obvious names here to pick a movie called Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Now I'll obviously get into a bit more details about this uh, when when you're finished telling me why you picked this. Uh, but it's directed by Richard Blackburn who has the most notable claim to fame is he not only wrote, produced and starred in Eating Raoul, um, mm-hmm. But the the movie stars Leslie Taplin, Cheryl Smith, William Whittington, um, oh Whitton, sorry, not Whittington. I made them sound like Dick Whittington, um, who's a highwayman, I think. Yeah, with Dickington. Yeah, Dickington, which is his porn name. Um, and <laughs> synopsis is a young girl who returns to her hometown to see her dying father finds herself being drawn into a web of vampirism and witchcraft. I'd never heard of this movie before. Oh, never heard of it. Watched it this morning for the first time. Never heard it before. Um, uh-huh. Was this one that was like, when you thought 1973, you were, there was obviously certain titles you were like, yeah! Was this one you had to kind of delve the mind to come up with for, for the, the number five spot on your list? Um, or was this always there for you? Oh no! This was on my list. Um, oh, yeah, I I like I, I've seen this movie a bunch of times now, um, and it is I think the the equivalent of let's scare Jessica to death mm-hmm. on the seventy one list. Mm-hmm. I Lamora, a child's tale of the supernatural, ain't gonna be in the top two. I yeah. recognize that, <laughs> but if we're talking about the ten best horror movies of nineteen seventy three, it I think it belongs in that conversation. Um, it is, uh, first of all, we didn't have lesbian vampires on the list yet, so <laughs> checkbox. Um, it is this bizarro fairy tale about a Baptist singer little girl mm-hmm. who is uh who kind of steals away in the night to go visit her like no good father um who is in theory on his deathbed but uh in reality uh is in fact on his deathbed but is in the clutches of uh, Lamora who is drawing uh the young girl into her clutches to uh to corrupt her to, to corrupt her and to in a way fulfill her destiny um, it is very dreamlike. It, it's occasionally very silly. Like the, the, all the makeup, like there are like sub tiers of vampires. There are like the creepy kid vampires, mm-hmm. which are eerie as fuck. There are the feral vampires that I think are just people who have been bitten and aren't real vampires, but are just kind of monsters. And we see them eat a bus driver early on, which is pretty great. <laughs> uh, Gus Exposition was the the bus driver's name. I like how he tells every like the entire story of like 
you know, ah, there's monsters out here. Nobody, nobody goes up to uh, Lamora's house much. And um, then is immediately like, but I can't tell you nothing about that. Don't ask no questions. <laughs> and it's like, what do you, you're terrible at this. If you're trying to keep secrets, you're awful. Um, I, love, I love the fact that like during your impression of that, you started to break out the Brimley. There was a bit of Wilford in there. <laughs> we're, I'm not taking you up there at night, goddammit. Um, <laughs> monsters about and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, it's... All of that said, it like the the color scheme is not complicated, but it's very striking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very moody movie. Like I said, it, it, watching this movie is like you're remembering fragments of a dream that has some truly nasty moments in it. And and to me, that's what Lamore is, as well as being this sort of fable about you know the corruption of the innocent and stuff like that. Like there's some meat on those bones, but. Um, it's really just the the mood and atmosphere and and sort of like subconscious skullduggery that Lamora does for me. It's a very personal thing. It just hits me in a weird way. Um, but what about you, Duncan? If you've never seen it, I'm I'm very curious what your take on it was. And it was funny you mentioned uh, "Let's Scare Jessica to Death" because that was instantly what sprung into my mind purely from the cinematography. And you're right about that. There is a, a there are very soft tones in the way that the movie is shot, which kind of... It's somewhere between Let's Scare Jessica to Death and Carrie. And, you know... And the, and the yeah, way, by way of Suspiria a yeah, little bit. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, and I'd, I'd never heard of this movie before at all. Uh, and during my research, before I watched it, I noticed that it, it scored incredibly highly on things like Rotten Tomatoes. I think it holds like an 85% there, which, you know, ain't no slouch for a horror movie. And yeah, so I, I sat down and watched it this morning. There is there is a, a, um, a not bad copy of it. I think it may be a VHS rip um, on YouTube, if you want to go and check it out. Because I couldn't find a way to buy it over here. Um but what what struck me out at, like most mostly about it was that I thought it was just a really interesting it kind of feels like there's there's like elements of like a morality tale kind of wrapped up in like a, a kind of almost like a campfire ghost story which just really worked for me I thought like um I'd actually really enjoyed the the performances as well. Uh, Leslie Taplin that plays Lamora is brilliant, and this like really really wonderfully wicked. Um, and whilst you're saying that maybe t- some of the makeup's a bit goofy and all the rest, I think it kind of works for the movie because of its kind of dreamlike nature. I think yeah, if, I do too. Yeah. yeah, I think if they tried to ground it a bit more, I I probably wouldn't have been looking back with it as fondly. Um, it's the sort of movie where I would love to have seen this when it came out because I get a feeling that this would have scared the shit out of me um, as a youngster. I just get that feeling that this would be one of those ones where I wouldn't be able to remember the name, but like a couple of scenes would have stuck with me. That you know I'd be online saying, "What was the name of that movie where you know the bus driver gets viciously attacked?" You know, like I, I just get the feeling that those would have been things that would have stuck with me. Um, I thought it was a really interesting movie. I I genuinely thought that this is the sort of movie that I would love to see a better copy of, but I could imagine me revisiting this a 
you know, quite a few times and examining it more for the things that I think the filmmaker is actually trying to do in the movie. It kind of feels like a lesser director, even though this guy didn't end up directing all that much, but I kind of feel like a lesser director this would have made this like a TV movie sort of thing, but this guy elevates it to actually quite an interesting little horror movie. I was I was very, very, very surprised, bro. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It's, there's this weird eroticism around her innocence mm-hmm. that that is a thing that people find attractive about her but only because they want to spoil it yeah and it's i mean it's a really interesting surreal film yeah it was like that's i think that's what caught me off guard was um i think i was expecting something a bit more uh, nuts and bolts uh, and what i got was something which you know instantly gravitates towards my tastes i like movies that play with kind of the ideas of, of of dreams or you know linking in stylistically choices to make things feel very dreamlike when telling horror stories because i think the two are intrinsically linked and i think the i think this movie captures a, a really cool vibe of it um now I will, I'll, I'll, oh, I'll see uh, just remind me later but i'll see if i can get you uh, uh my copy of this because mm-hmm. it is a, a it's not great but it's way better than that youtube stuff so excellent i will speak to you off air bro Yes. Um, so yeah, that was Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Um, so we might as well just continue the, the heavy hitters journey here. And let's get this one off the list. We need to talk about it. Um, it's a little movie directed by a guy called William Freakin, uh, based on this little novel by this guy called William Peter Bly. Um, Freakin himself had done you know, some fairly unsuccessful films, you may have heard of them before, The French Connection, Cruising, um, and the lesser known but actually badass movie that I only saw for the first time this year because Arrow put it out, To Live and Die in LA, which I kind of love, like genuinely yeah. think it's a fucking great movie. It's good, it's real good William Peters. <laughs> yeah, really, really good. Um, but yeah, this is The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Um, cue the tubular bells. Don't cue the tubular bells. Uh, the movie stars Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Jason Miller, Linda Blair, and William O'Malley. Um, synopsis is listed on IMDb. Is if I need to tell anyone this. When a teenage girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks help from two priests to save her daughter. Let me just get some of the trivia out. Some of the important trivia about this movie. Like I said earlier on, if you adjust for inflation... It's Warner Brothers' highest-grossing film of all time. Dear God, dear God. Um, Also, uh, it was the first horror film to be nominated for the Best Picture Academy Award. Uh, The four films that were to follow were Jaws, 1975, Silence of the Lambs, 1991, The Sixth Sense, 1999, and Black Swan, 2010. Um... Now, I, I would say, I would, I, yeah, I class Black Swan as a horror movie, but I know a lot of people would argue that stance. Um, and out of all of them, The Silence of the Lambs is the only one that ever won the Best Picture Oscar, so kind of feel like someone was asleep at the wheel when The Exorcist was out. Um, the Academy were just maybe not ready. 
Yeah, other interesting facts about this one, um, which I kind of love. Uh, the original teaser trailer, which consisted of nothing but images of a white-faced demon quickly flashing in and out of the darkness, was banned in many theatres as it was deemed too frightening. So, there you go. Simple. Simplistic. And that's how you get it. Um, some of the weird casting choices that would have changed this movie for you could maybe argue the better, I would argue the worse. Um, producers originally sought to have Jamie Lee Curtis audition for the role of Reagan, but her mother, Janet Lee, refused, point blank, uh, to have her daughter involved with the movie. And uh, as you can imagine, Jamie Lee Curtis was gutted about that because she got no breaks in any other you know, horror movies that would tr transcend the genre or do anything like that. She was obviously highly upset by that. Uh, Jack Nicholson was up for the part of Father Karras. <laughs> Dear God. Before Jason Miller landed the role. Uh, William Friedkin thought he was too unholy to ever play a priest. Yes, that is the right yep. decision, Friedkin. Yep. <laughs> yes, good call. <laughs> Very good call. Uh, the studio wanted Marla... So she's uh, <laughs> fucking possessed or what? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you this, Pazuzu. Never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> it's my favourite Nicholson line, and it's so stupid. My it's so <laughs> stupid. I think it's the greatest line in cinema history. Never rub another man's rhubarb. Oh. Kick me out of the church because they said I fight and fuck too much. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to ever see him as a priest, ever. So yeah, yeah. It's... It's good, as soon as he smiles, it's all over. Exactly. Like, in fact, as soon as he faces the camera, it's all over. Like, well, it's like when he got cast in Witches of Eastwick as the devil, it was like, well, of course. <laughs> yeah, it was like, perfect casting. <laughs> right. He's probably the devil. <laughs> That's like, a great idea. Yeah, there's only two people in the history of cinema that you could cast in that role. One of them is Jack Nicholson, who is known for having a bit of a funny side, which sells the comedy in that one. Um, the other one is Lance Henriksen, who is clearly the devil. Um, like, like, no joke, Lance Henriksen terrifies me when he's on screen because he just looks angry all the time. Even as Bishop, he looked fucking angry all the time. Um, so there would be no humour in that one at all because Lance Henriksen, not known for his humour. Uh, so yeah, so Jack Nicholson, not given that role. The studio wanted Marlon Brando for the role of Father Merrin. Who are Who is in the fucking studio? Honestly, William Friedkin immediately vote, uh, vetoed this by stating that with Brando in the film, it would become a Brando movie instead of the important film he wanted to make. Once again, great call. Great fucking call. Um... And there was one more, but yeah, in, two th in 2007, a poll conducted by the UK t uh, newspaper, The Times, for the top 50 scariest moments um, in, in movie history, uh, The Exorcist topped the list. Surprise, surprise, as you would imagine. Um, now, Bo, we have spoken about this movie on a little show called Graveshift Radio. We had a great discussion about it. I have never reviewed The Exorcist on the podcast under the stairs. It will happen one day, uh, just not today. This is a mini review. Do we need to sell The Exorcist as, you know, one of the greatest horror movies of all time? Do, do we do we have to put the work in? And if so, how do we very quickly sell it to people who may dispute the fact or have still lived in a world where they've never seen The Exorcist? All right, let me 
tell a little story, Duncan. Oh. The, this will be my ultimate review or encapsulation of the significance of The Exorcist. Uh, I was talking to my mom uh, a while back about uh, when The Exorcist came out and she went to the theaters to see it. And I, of course, was too young. I was born this year, so, uh, but not aware of The Exorcist at the time, mm-hmm. uh, being a womb and all. And she said that when this came out, there were there would be people, you would see news reports of people who left the theater thinking they were possessed. Yeah. Because of how impactful this movie was. And also people are stupid. But <laughs> the larger point is that The Exorcist is a movie that makes you believe in it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you saying Friedkin directed it as a drama, I say absolutely, he does. He the, This feels like a very supernatural film presented in the most matter-of-fact way that it, from Ellen Burstyn's performance uh, to Max von Sydow's flawless age makeup that people still can't get right and it looks amazing on him yeah and that's how he uh, actually looks now which is the weird thing you know he it, yeah. aged exactly the way they prosthetically made him age um, you know as we were talking earlier uh, about the wicker man like there's a little piece of the wicker man that doesn't quite you know gun my motor um <laughs> There is nary such a scene in The Exorcist. Mm. For me, The Exorcist, even in in both forms, both theatrical and in the extended version, um, I don't think there's a scene that doesn't work. It it moves together perfectly. It's a perfect movie, uh, and and I can watch it any day of the week. Uh, it, it to this day, I've seen Exorcist probably twenty plus times. I will easily watch it again. Mm, there we go. I am. Um, I remember when this movie was re-released in the cinema in the UK, with the scenes that had been cut out, in particular the things like the spider rock uh, mm. down, the, down the stairs. I remember I had seen The Exorcist when I was younger, but um, I don't know. I, I I obviously wasn't paying attention, or it wasn't grabbing me, or it was too slow for for young Duncan at the time. To sit down and watch, but I remember when it was being released to me and a group of my friends were like that. Let's, you know, people. I, it's on the poster saying the most frightening film of all time. Let's go. It's not going to be that bad, and all the rest. And it's one of a handful of movies that had me with visible kind of goosebumps on my skin, watching it all the way through, even when nothing scary was happening on the screen. Um, in a in a cinema environment, it is a hugely powerful movie. And just every scene seems really important. And you're, I think you're, you, when you're saying like directly like a drama, matter of factly, you believe everything in this movie, even if you're a non-believer. I don't believe in the god. I don't believe in the devil. Don't believe in demons. I don't believe in any of that stuff. When watching this movie, it just felt important. Everything, ma- you know, everything they do in the movie just feels like it's handled with a, a degree of importance that makes you stand up and pay attention to it. Um, Linda Blair. In the makeup with the voice, um, is is genuinely terrifying. Is like one of those things, like, and the things that come out her mouth. And I'm Scottish, right? <laughs> like using the word cunt in Scotland is not a thing, but we, we, you know, 
it's, it's, it's transacted in conversation uh, as easily as people pay for goods and services. You know what I mean? It's like it's almost like an unofficial currency, a dialogue currency in Scotland. Um, it is the comma of Scotland. Pretty much. <laughs> but um, hearing it come out of, of, of Reagan's um, demon voice is, is hugely unsettling. Um, and the just the power of the movie, I think, is I think is what very few films have the intensity and power of The Exorcist. Um, almost all the way through the movie, and you don't feel beaten down at the halfway point. In this movie, you continue that you want to continue the journey to the end, and it doesn't have the happiest ending in the world either. This is like a kind of common trend in movies in 1973. Um, there isn't a huge happy ending at the end of this. It takes a toll uh, in the scars yeah. that it, you know, it takes on everyone. You, you know, carry on beyond the movie, which I think is, which, which I think is pretty phenomenal. It's not a you know, like the kind of the universal horrors or the hammer horrors at the time when the movie finished, the bad guy had vanquished the good guy, and even if everyone around them had died, no one seemed too upset about it. You know, run the run the uh, the credits and and let's get out of here. And this one, you feel the journey every step of the way, and I think that is incredible filmmaking. Um, and yeah, I think it's I think it's what makes The Exorcist not only a perfect movie but one of the most important movies ever made, ever made in cinema. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this one goes through 1973, Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's... I don't know. <laughs> you got your work cut out for you, The Exorcist. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, uh, let, let, let's jump away from here. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Let's talk about something wholly ridiculous, but I fucking love it. Uh, scream, Blackula, Scream. Which I noticed you were watching this morning. You'd seen this one before, though, hadn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I was giving it a rewatch because it had been a while, and I saved it for last because I knew it was just this kind of fun, crazy movie. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and- a, it's a ton of fun because like Br- Blackula never like the first movie, Blackula, um, never actually made the top ten list. Uh, for the year it was released just because of competition the second one makes it because I think the second one's better than the first one I think the second one has benefited from the fact that you have Pam motherfucking Greer in this movie Oh, mm-hmm. I could watch Pam Greer all day on the screen and I think um, William Marshall's portrayal of Blackula is just it's it's cranked up to 11 kind of spinal tap style um, I, you know, I love him, you know, the name's Blackula! Yeah, well... <laughs> amazing. Yes, I mean, he he is full Shakespearean mm-hmm. in in his role of uh, Blackula. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, it's like both of these movies are better than they ought to be. Oh, definitely. Based, based on the names. Definitely. definitely. And he's really good in it. Pam Greer is really good in it. It has these kind of cool elements of voodoo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely speaks to the times in which it was made. It, like, I was thinking about this morning that it's tough to call a movie like this black exploitation, yeah, because it doesn't feel exploitative. It feels very, like, very, like culturally positive. Mm-hmm. 
in a, in a lot of ways. And maybe it's just me being an old white dude and misreading it, but it, it there there doesn't seem to be anyone getting harmed uh, culturally speaking in the making of this film. And in fact, it's very much about like we have our own like culture and society that we defend and we believe in. And also we can protect ourselves and uh, the police are useless in this movie. <laughs> the police are uh, useless in every, every um, black exploitation horror movie generally because one of them is, uh, is a black dude, but yeah, and they're the ones that usually are, are the one that are going to get to the bottom of it. But the white dudes are all, all pretty useless <laughs> but yeah i mean it, I, t- I know what you're saying in terms of the the, the black exploitation angle i and you're right in terms of ordinary movies but i think when it comes to black exploitation horror movies i think the i think they get lumped in as you know black exploitation purely because they are making well what they would class as exploitation versions of white horror movies but appropriating them using black culture um, which I, I agree sure. with you doesn't necessarily lend itself to the term uh, of of you know black exploitation. We think of the, the you know the the heavy hitters out with the genre, um, but yeah, the use of voodoo, you know, the, the, all all these all these things. When you look at the the big black exploitation horror movies, they all have those elements. So it's like we're going to take Dracula, that movie that these these white people made, and we're going to do it our way. Uh, we're going to inject like voodoo, and we're going to you know inject the the kind of the the kind of foxy sassiness of Pam Grier, and we're going to like do all these things from the cinema they were developing in the seventies. And on paper, this movie should be a, not a good movie. <laughs> it should be one of these ones that we talk about where we're just like, oh, did you hear the name? Oh my god, did you see right. what? Happened? Uh- Blackenstein, the Black Frankenstein, is the perfect, perfect example. example. Yeah, it's the perfect that example. That movie is god off. That is black exploitation, <laughs> tr- tried and true. <laughs> but it's, it, there's just something about this. Like I, I, I agree with you. I think like when I originally reviewed Blackula, and I've done both these movies once again. I did these with Johnny Krug back in the day, and what we said was like William Marshall is is lending this role. A degree of authenticity that you would not see a lot of people give towards the role of Dracula um, or Blackula in this case. And he does at times, if you close his eyes and you listen to his dialogue and the way he enunciates it, he is very Christopher Lee. He's like, you know, he's like, yeah, and, and yeah. which which I kind of love. Um, but what I love about this one is like the they just didn't try and do the same movie again, which. Unfortunately, Universal and Hammer had a tendency to do, and this one has like just so much more attitude, and just like they knew what they were doing with this one. If we are bringing him back, this is going to be a whole hell of a lot of fun, and that's what you get in the movie all the way through it. And I, I kind of love that. I mean, the <laughs> I, I love it. it says uh, one of the bits of trivia was before the movie came out, employees of AIP were asked to submit titles for a contest. And what went out was Scream, Blackula Scream. What do you think, once again, he's like, how do, what do we do? Like, Blackula Rises, you know? How do we do this? You know, how do we bring him back? Um, and Blackula that- on the bayou. <laughs> oh, okay. I want to see that. Yeah. I want to yeah. see that. Um, but Bob Kelgen directed this one. Most notably known for doing the Count Yorga movies. Um, 
but did a whole hell of a lot of TV after this. After this movie, he did very few movies. He did like Wonder Mo- Woman and Starsky and Hutch and Charlie's Angels all in the seventies. Um, but yeah, it's it's just as goofy, goofy fun. Um, and like, what's interesting is like I find Blackula a wholly tragic character in the first movie, and I don't in the second movie at all. He he's going for the same pathos, like. What I enjoy about Blackula's gig is that his ultimate goal is to stop being Blackula. Mm-hmm. And, and in both movies, that's really what he wants to do. And in this movie, that is, you know, his attempts to have Pam Greer, who's a voodoo priestess, free him from this curse. But Blackula do what Blackula do. And now we've got a bunch of vampires running around also mm. making life difficult for everyone. Um, but I like I, I like this story. I, I think the scene in um, the uh, the uh, the funeral home mm-hmm. with the the girl rising uh, is very reminiscent to me of the Toby Hooper Salem's lot moment yep. with Marjorie Glick and. Uh, I think that's really creepy. There, the bat effects are better this time around as well. <laughs> Not great, better. And um, yeah, it's just a real fun movie. Like it's a, this movie is a really good time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I I, I think it's a, a great movie. You know, again, <laughs> Exorcist, look out. <laughs> Yeah, scream Blackula Scream has put you on notice. It, but I, I like when when uh at the end of the movie when like uh he's he's about to kill Justin and mm-hmm. Justin calls him by his real name, which is and I am gonna mispronounce it, but it's like uh uh Matawimbe uh, no, Ma- Ma- I think. Something like that. I'll I'll fuck it up again if I try. <laughs> but uh uh it calls him by that name. And and uh, Blackula is like I am Blackula, <laughs> and it's uh, but it's a great moment of like oh he is rejecting his humanity and becoming a monster. Like there are things in the movie that are like oh that's actually a clever way to go with this. It's not yeah. just stupid exploitation, you know. Um, it yeah, I think Scream Blackula Scream much like its predecessor. Uh, unfortunate titles uh, really good movies yeah agreed agreed 100% agreed 100% um, so we go from kind of <laughs> a vibrant bimsy um, fun watch it's a fun ride Bo it's a fun ride it's a good time yeah it's a good time for the I mean, music alone it's worth mentioning the music in Scream Blackula Scream is great. Oh, it's bitching. Absolutely bitching. And then we go to... I think this is technically the first horror movie that... First proper horror movie, anyway, that Romero does after doing Night of the Living Dead. I think he... He maybe did one or two movies that kind of are classed as... I don't even think they are classed as horror movies. I think. When was Hungry Wives or uh, uh, Season of the Witch? Was that Season of the Witches? I think Season of the Witches pre this. Um, I've not seen it in ages, and I've got it pre-ordered. I need to watch it again, but I can't. Is the Season of the Witch even though it has that name? Is it an out and out horror movie? It's much like Martin. It's kind of fuzzy on some of that stuff. Yeah, I I need. I can't can't wait for it to arrive. It arrives in October. Uh, Arrow's putting out this big flash 
flashy box set um, of Romero stuff, and uh, they have they have um, uh, Season of the Witch in there, so can't wait. And and uh, the crazies, but it's the crazies we're talking about. Um, yeah, so directed by George A. Romero, the guy that gave you Night, Day, and Dawn. Uh, of The Living Dead, Martin, Creepshow 1 and 2, and many, many, many more films. We sadly lost them uh, just just about a month ago now. Um, uh, the synopsis is listed on IMDb. The military attempts to contain a man-made combat virus that causes death and permanent insanity on those infected as it overtakes a small Pennsylvania town. Um, I had not seen this original one. It's on Shudder just now in the UK. I don't know if it is in the States. I had not seen the original Crazies in... I want to say it's a couple of years because I want to see the Crazies remake was in my top... Was it in my top 10 remakes? I, can't, I can never remember. I was doing work when I was looking at the Crazies remake because I actually really liked the remake. I think the remake is one of those ones where, you know, it changes a couple of things, but doesn't fuck around too much with it, and still gives you, you know, what I feel is a a fitting Romero ending, um, and that Romero was never really known for happy endings, he was known for realistic endings, <laughs> which I quite dig about Romero, that's what would happen at the end of the movie, that's what would happen if this thing played out in real life, there would always be a cover-up, there always is a cover-up, it always happens, always will happen, um, there is no happy endings in a, a George A. Romero world, um, and I watched it again today, and yeah, it's, it's a fucking super powerful movie, I, I think it's really, really, really good, I think it kind of feels, the way it's shot as well, it kind of feels at times like you're watching some sort of Mondo-esque documentary, that you know had somehow managed to smuggle its way out of a place that you it shouldn't have been hidden in in the first place, and you you're accidentally seeing it. Um, at times, it's very difficult to like it, certain scenes in the movie actually really get me as feeling wholly realistic um, to the point it made me feel quite uncomfortable. And watching it back, my only criticism of it is that I think it's a bit long, and that is it. Like I think like at an hour and forty five minutes, the movie could chop ten out and be like comfortable but the central message the the, the kind of the political statement that is being used by Romero is is not you know veilly hidden <laughs> in this movie it's front and center right through the entire movie but it doesn't feel like Romero standing at a pulpit lecturing you at all he, he's just pointing out things that happen um, in a way which works really well for me um, before I hand it over I will say that a couple of the trivia things really make the movie quite endearing to me and it really speaks to the Romero as a director um, you know the way he managed to like I'm sitting there going this scene feels really authentic and it's because for the most part a lot of what he did was uh, no Hollywood stuntmen were used in the crazies local firemen and licensed firework professionals handled all the action sequences including the creation of the creation and employment of blood squibs. Uh, the burning house at the beginning of the film was a bit of serendipity for the film's crew. The local fire department was burning down an old house to practice putting out uh, and agreed to let the firemen set it up for the film and the event. Um, and the, the budget for the crazies was approximately, this is fucking mind blown, uh, $270,000 and it was Romero's first union film but he also employed a lot of actors from Pittsburgh and non-professionals from Evans City um, so, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it feels authentic in a lot of ways because a lot of the people, a lot of the cast that were in it were authentic firemen. So that's why it feels real. Um, what do you make of the crazies, Bo? Um, I really, really enjoy the crazies a whole lot. Uh, I think yeah, all the things you said are true. I, I would say that one of the flaws of the film, in addition to it being a little on the, uh, the fat side in terms of editing, um, is that the acting can be amateurish, uh, to the point of distraction at times. Um, that said, one of the things that's most interesting to me about the crazies is that you look at something like day of the dead, uh, only a few years later, but, but, kind of tellingly in the Reagan years. Yes. And you see how the government and military or what remains of it is presented in that film. And it's incredibly dark. Uh Whereas in this movie, it is dark. They're like the government fucked up and they're covering it up and they're going to do awful shit to keep it covered up. But there are also those moments where you see the humanity in those characters yes, that they, yes. they are part of a machinery. They're not necessarily bad people. And, you know, later on, I think Romero gives that up and just says, Hey, if you're part of the machine, you're part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, it's not just the machine anymore. Um, but it's really fascinating, uh, from a thematic point of view. And it is really, really good. Like a, a lot of this movie is really entertaining. It's, and it's shocking. Uh, at times there's a lot of like this movie doesn't get super violent, but it's still Romero and Romero likes a little bit of gore here and there. (laughs) And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there's still some stuff that's like, Oh, that's gnarly. Um, and yeah, I mean, it ends in a pretty grim way. Uh, fittingly though, fitting, fitting for what Romero is saying with this movie, very, you know, anti-establishment kind of message for sure. Uh, so yeah, no, the crazies is one of those that like, if you've never seen it, what are you doing? You, you like get this under your belt. The crazies is legit. A really, really good movie. There we go. There we go. Right. So let's swing it on. Um, first movie appearance on this list by this kind of throwaway director who didn't have much of a career. You may have heard of him, Brian De Palma. Um, he brought such great movies as Carrie. Phantom of the Paradise, Blowout, Scarface, The Untouchables, and Mission Impossible. So, flash in the pan career that did not carry on over several decades. And um, I believe uh, the last I heard is he is looking into making some sort of comeback with a horror film in the next year or so, which could be interesting. I'm just saying interesting. Sure, I, I'll watch it's, it. It's always worth a look when he decides he's going to do something. Definitely, definitely. Um, so, Sisters is the movie. It's his first proper big studio movie. Um, it stars Margot Kidder, who is in so many movies on this 70s list. It's unbelievable. Um, I don't realise how many genre movies she did. It's weird in the 70s. You know what I mean, just did, for some reason, she's not instantly the, a name that springs to mind when I think of kind of genre actresses. But she plays a lot um, in the 70s. Uh, Jennifer Salt, uh, Charles Dunning uh, is in this one, and William Finney or Finley, sorry. Uh, Synopsis for this one. Uh, A journalist witnesses a brutal murder in a neighbouring apartment, but the police do not believe that the crime took place. With the help of a private detective, she seeks out 
the truth. Um, yeah, so Brian De Palma was inspired to make this movie after he read an article uh, about a so uh, which was set in the Soviet Union about Siamese twins who were successfully separated after the operation. Uh, De Palma said he was haunted by the photograph of the twins in which one looked cheery and healthy and the other one looked surly and disturbed. Um, this is uh, there are a couple of things that are quite noticeable about this movie. Um, like De Palma, many times has been tarred with a br- brush that he's a Hitchcock ripoff, which I think is, I've always said is, yeah, influenced heavily. I don't think he ripped off Hitchcock, and I think if he ripped off Hitchcock, then I think a lot of directors ripped off Hitchcock, and we should just leave it at that. Um, but he managed to get uh, Bernard Herrmann to to do the score for it and obviously Herman had done a lot of the the work with the, the great man Hitchcock himself uh, but there's this great story which is actually told on uh, the De Palma documentary which I spoke about recently on Duncan and Bogo at Twin Peaks it's on uh, Amazon Prime at the moment highly recommend you check it out but he basically says that uh, to indicate the musical effects he wanted Brian De Palma had put together an edit of the film that was dubbed with music from the films of the composer he wanted to hire Bernard Herrmann and while showing it to Herrmann the composer stopped him with a young man I cannot watch your film while I'm listening to Marnie <laughs> it's just like he's put the score in there he got shut right down straight away um, and you know to, to palm up was a dream he never thought he'd be working with such a a master of movie music as he called him um, or on his first proper studio outing I love this movie I think this one to me is it's a really powerful first movie, you know what I mean, in terms of style. This this movie here has so many of the style tropes that De Palma will use in pretty much all of his movies going forward, specifically the split screen stuff and the quad screen that he does in the movie is, you know, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think the, 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 the kind of Hitchcockian, yes, is difficult not to use that word when describing a De Palma kind of thriller or mystery. The kind of Hitchcockian mystery of what's actually going on in this movie um, and the fact that we have that almost like rear window scenario of uh, you know someone witnessing something and then not being able to prove it um, I think works really well. I, I think it's just like a, a a fascinating like first movie you know but from a director that goes on to have a, a really interesting career um, to look back here he was already kind of doing stuff against the green from the start uh, which you know did, would I think after watching Sisters we should give this guy Carrie never in a million years but obviously obviously that's where he ended up with and uh, look what he became um, what, what do you think of Sisters Bo? Yeah I, I think Sisters is uh, a fantastic movie um, there you know the split screen stuff that is popularized in Carrie, I prefer it in Sisters. Yeah, I, I think agree. it all it it fits the theme of this movie so well of the idea of the duality and and so forth, uh, and that whole sequence with the murder and cleanup going on simultaneous with the witnessing and her contacting the police and Mm -hmm. trying to get someone there. And all of that stuff is so good. And there are all these little mini mysteries like that all peppered throughout the film. Uh, Like when the body is in the couch, 
and there's the little stain on the back and the cops and the, and the reporter are uh, wandering around and there's again the very Hitchcockian are they going to see this thing that would reveal everything but it's such a small thing yeah it's and, like shades of the rope as well but, and, and this this whole movie is just the shitty rear window it's like I was peering through my window, saw this thing, and now my life is fucked. Mm-hmm. And which is, by the way, what the real synopsis on IMDb ought to be. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the like there are a number of little reveals throughout the movie that just keep throwing you off a little bit. You know, all the red herring stuff and. Uh, yeah, it's a great movie. It's 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 got style for days, mm. and uh, and and yeah, it's Brian De, De Palma like kicking in the door of movies and just being like, "What the fuck up, y'all?" <laughs> Brian De Palma in the hizzy. Uh, <laughs> right here's a little movie called Sisters, where I don't know Margot Kidder's French. Who who knows? Let's do this. You know, is she a twin? Is she evil? Is she crazy? Come on in, everybody. Like. This is kind of sixth sense level. Like when this movie lands, mm. it's just like, who the fuck is this guy? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think Sisters is often unappreciated. Yeah, I think so. I think it's the one that, like, whenever I hear people. T- and it's obvious, you know, like, De Palma had some huge movies. He did, like, some incredible works within the genre and out with the genre that, you know, sometimes people don't think to look back at the start but Sisters to me is one of his most underappreciated movies I think um, as you know as debuts go this to me if I saw this when this first came out I'd be like right who's this Brian De Palma guy I need to that right he's now on my radar I am now watching very very much like what I was like when we were talking about uh, Denis Villeneuve on um, on Duncan and Bo after watching Enemy and more of that, right? This guy, right? We'd seen Prisoners. Prisoners was a was a great movie. It was, you know, it was a kind of tense, dark, moody thriller. But there's plenty of them out there. And then I watched Enemy, and I was like, oh, I've right, what the fuck, right? Who is this guy? Right. Yeah. Who who is this guy? And it turns out, Bo, that guy's went on to do some pretty good things. <laughs> like, Made my favorite movie last year for sure. So yeah. and he he has a potential to to bring. He's, I mean, he's doing the Blade Runner movie this year, and that has me excited on levels like I do not usually get excited for. Uh, and it's purely because his name's attached to it. That's why I want to see that movie. I mean, it's like the sequel to one of my favourite sci-fi movies of all time. But Denis Villeneuve at the, at the helm, every genre that guy has touched has been amazing. Um, and De Palma's pretty much the same. Everything De Palma has done out with genres, I think for the most part, have been really exciting. Whether it's Untouchables or Mission Impossible or you know a musical like Phantom of the Paradise which comes out a year before the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, just like, he's... I at times feel like he's ahead of the curve on so much, um, but often, you know, lumped with this tag that he's just recreating, you know, like the the, the, the finer, you know, uh, highlights or hit singles of Hitchcock. And I'll, you know, like I say, I, I think he admits himself, he was heavily influenced um, and definitely took ideas <laughs> and story points forward for sure but you know to to not acknowledge what he adds to them or what he changes to them I think is um, is a, a, a level of short sightedness which is unfair um, and doesn't get lumped at many other directors so there you go it's my defence 
of Brian De Palma on the podcast under the stairs. I think for the, like the sixth time I've went through that diatribe when talking about this guy. I fucking love him. Um, right, so let's I'll go from like that uh, to a little movie that will make you very sad. Um, it's a it's a tragic tale. It is a heavy hitter. Um, it's the first time I've watched this movie since becoming a father, as well, and it had a stronger impact on me. Sure, yeah. Uh, like really changed the movie. Like I watched this today. Um, I got the Criterion of this a while ago, and never watched it. Don't know why. Uh, obviously, been saving it for a rainy day or for some master plan like this. I love this idea of me building this whole top 10 scenario around just watching this one movie. Um, <laughs> the only way I can justify opening this blurry is by creating an elaborate scheme where I have to watch 100 movies. <laughs> so, um, but Good don't, idea. <laughs> don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Roge. Now, me and Bo have discussed this guy once before on Duncan and Bo. Come correct, we did Walkabout, which... We both were kind of... That's a great movie. Yeah, it turns out it's a really great movie. Um, but the guy has done, you know, some pretty incredible work out with that. The Man Who Fell to Earth with a little guy called Bowie. <clears throat> I've done a Bowie impression recently on Duncan and Bogot Twin Peaks. He's going to listen to it. Uh, Bad Timing, which starred... Uh, is it Simon Garfunkel's in that one? Oh, is he well, Sam? no, there, Simon Garfunkel is not a person, Duncan. That's Simon <laughs> and Garfunkel. Oh, yeah, Simon, what's his face? Paul Simon. Is it, no, it's Art Garfunkel then. It's Art Garfunkel that's yeah. in the movie, yeah. but they're, they're one Simon person. Garfunkel. Simon Garfunkel is what happens when they go through the machine <laughs> and the fly and they come out as the perfect, perfect musical entity. Uh-huh. Yes. So I'll have all right, know. all right. Uh, so Great Garf- songwriter, voice of an angel. I yes. get it. Yeah, um, and the other one is still releasing. Like Paul Simon's still putting out albums, I think. Yeah, every now and again he'll just you know fart out a record at the age <laughs> of a million and a half. <laughs> it's like, it's like Chevy Chase might appear in one of his music videos. I don't know. Um, yeah. This so- one's called the Boxer Seven. <laughs> um. And uh, he did The Witches as well, which uh, still to this day terrifies the fuck out of me. Oh my god. Listen to that. We should we should do a Roald Dahl story. Remember The Witches? That's quite a terrifying story. Quite a terrifying yeah. story. Who will we get to do it? You think you think the Don't Look Now director's working? No, let's just give it to him. Um, and terrifying. You know that one where you see Donald Sutherland's dick? Who directed that? <laughs> Get him in here. We want. We need someone on this kids movie. <laughs> it's the name of a college band as well, Donald Sutherland's Dick. Um, we were kind of avant-garde, uh, kind of art rock trio. Sure. Um, yeah. We only had one song. Uh, it wasn't a very good one either. Uh, so <laughs> let's move on. Uh, yeah. So this is Don't Look Now, uh, directed by Nicholas Rose, starring Julie Christie, Donald Sutherland, Hilary Mason. Um, the synopsis is listed on IMDb a married couple grieving the death um, of their young daughter are in Venice when they encounter two elderly sisters one of whom is psychic and brings a warning from beyond Um, yeah this movie holy shit uh, the British Film Institute ranks don't look now at number 8 on their top 100 British films of all time um, the Times that we mentioned earlier on ranked this film as number 18 on their 100 greatest films ever made. 
It was voted number one <laughs> in Time Out's count for the best British films chosen by the film industry. Um, it's the film debut uh, for composer Pino Danaggio, who has done a shitload of stuff, including a ton of work with a certain guy um, called Brian De Palma, that we mentioned just earlier on. Um, yeah, uh, the, only, the only bit of um, interesting sort of trivia that I found about this one that kind of made me think, you know, I'm quite glad they didn't do that. Um, originally suggested for the lead roles were Robert Wagner and his wife Natalie Wood. Um, yeah, I'm quite glad they didn't go down that road. Um, yeah, yeah, for movie, sure. Different movie. Um, yeah, this movie, I watched it again today. I've seen it many times. It, if it's not... It's definitely in my top 10 horror movies. I think on any given day, it may be in my top five. I think it is incredible. I think it's artistic to a fault. I think it is, we're talking about, you know, kind of woozy dreamlike cinema. It's in here. It's psychedelic. It plays with time um, in a really interesting way. Um, which, which I think, you know, whether it's uh, the precognition of things to come, events that are happening during real time and, and things from the past, um, has, like, the one of the... I think it's the, the, the performances of Sutherland and Christie are just incredible in this one. Um, the score is, is, is haunting. Um, and it's just a, a, it's a, a mystery... Which is, I imagine the, the movie is being like a camel in the desert, and the, the camel being the mystery of the movie, which has just got so much baggage of grief on top of it that it almost breaks its back. Um, I, I, I think there are a few movies like Don't Look Now that have ever existed. Um, I, I think it's arguably his best movie as well, and Rose is a guy that's done a whole hell of a lot of really interesting stuff. I think Don't Look Now is his best. Um, and that's amongst a great catalogue of movies and it is just watching it back like I say specifically now that I have a daughter myself um, that impact of the, the first like 10 minutes was kind of soul crushing I kind of sat in silence watching it um, and then watching the movie carry on and the ending of this movie is known it's you know it's it's moved right into popular culture, um, because it's just so strange and just so out there, and you have this this married couple who are trying to move on past the death of their daughter, um, and you know living abroad in Venice, and uh, the father working as a <clears throat> like basically a restorer uh, on this this uh, church in Venice. Uh, and the wife, you know, befriending these two kind of elderly sisters, one of which is psychic, who is not only telling her stories about, you know, her daughter having moved on and being, you know, happy and kind of telling them to move on, but at the same time bringing forward these very grave warnings that, you know, uh, our husband John, played by Donald Sutherland, needs to get out of Venice because something bad's going to happen. And all this is done against the backdrop of a series of murders that are happening. Um, and the fact that Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie at times see what they think is the image of their daughter wearing the red kind of mat coat um, running about the streets of of, um, of Venice almost kind of 
bringing their guilt with them because they weren't looking after her when she died. That's a fucking incredible movie. Uh, and I, I won't hear anything else against it. Bo, uh, you don't have any negative points about this one. I've got a feeling that you kind of like this one. In fact, if memory serves, I bought you this movie. So You did indeed, Duncan. I, uh, I think uh, Don't Look Now is... It, uh, so here's the problem with Don't Look Now. Oh, no. Um, which isn't that much of a problem, really. It's just that, much like uh, we were discussing with The Wicker Man, this is the other movie on the list that is like, okay, it is a setup and a punchline. Yes. Uh, so the first time you see the movie, your focus is on what is going on with this little girl and the psychic stuff and like uh, almost the this sort of supernatural element to the film. And once you know what that is uh, and what that payoff uh, results in, watching it repeated times, it becomes less a horror film and more a character study of a, comp- of a couple trying to get through the loss of a child. All right. And uh, again, not that big a problem because it's a fascinating character study of two people who are not being honest with one another, who are, are doing everything they can to go through the motions of getting on with things. But one of them is in total denial and the other is, is just hanging on by her fingernails. Yeah. And it's really fascinating on that level. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a terrific movie. I mean, it, like you said, it, it's it got these surreal and, and, and kind of dreamlike qualities to it. The fact that it's set in Venice is really a, a fascinating piece of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just it, it's a tremendous film. Like, I, I can't. I can't think of a lot of negative things to say about Don't Look Now. You know, it is <laughs> it's one of those movies that like even though it it does play as more of a character drama, the more you see it, when you get to that ending, it is still just gross. There's just something about it that is so unsettling. Uh, it, it, it's hard to articulate and, and, and hard to forget once you've seen it. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really one of the, all right. So when I rewatched it again to do this, the thing that I was focused on was how much they talk about their son and how much he's seen in the film. Yeah. And even when like Julie Christie is at the boarding school after his, you know, his tumble or whatever, you still don't see him. No, she's there. He's there right at the very end. The only time you see him is, um, the very beginning. Yeah. At the death of his sister and the the death of his father at the very end. And furthermore, she spends, she travels from Venice back to England. We're assuming it's England, um, back to England to make sure he's okay. And she is back the next day in Venice. Yeah. So she doesn't even stay. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as like, you know, they say he was up and playing around that the next morning. Yeah. And, and so she's coming right back, but yeah, it's it, he's a non-entity, but there is a terrific shot where you see uh, the picture of the family mm-hmm. and the girl is blocked out by something in the foreground. Yeah. But you can see the sun. Yeah. And it, it's all just it, like it's 
it's a it's a piece of art, Duncan. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things. Where I'd, yeah, he's a infinitely fascin- fascinating filmmaker. I, I just don't think there's. I think like I, I would speak about Nicholas Rose the same way as I would speak about someone like David Lynch, and that you know they're just they just appear to operate and make movies in a way which doesn't necessarily feel conventional, but for some reason just are, are totally um, engrossing. Um, so yeah, let's jump from Don't Look Now to... Um, yeah, we've already discussed this yet, director. This one, funnily enough, links to a movie we discussed on 1971. Uh, it's the director of Twins of Evil. Um, he did also The Watcher in the Woods and Escape from Witch Mountain. This is John Harr. Har. Right, John Har. Har. John Har. Har. It's like a windy, there's a wounded dog in the background. And this is the yeah. legend of Hell House. Um, the movie stars Pamela Franklin, Roddy McDowell, Clive Revel, Gail Hunnicutt. I almost said the N in there. <laughs> I had to watch myself. Oh, uh, Duncan, yeah. you are so Scottish. Oh, so Scottish. Uh, painfully Scottish. Uh, Roland uh, Culver and Peter Bowles. Um, synopsis is listed on IMDb. Uh, Psych. Uh, what's that? Physicist? Is that physicist? Lionel Barrett and his wife leads a team of mediums into the house, uh, the Belasco house, which is supposedly haunted by the victims of its late owner, a six foot five serial killer. Six foot five, boy. You're quite tall, aren't you? About you're about six two, six three. Uh, yeah, I am. A hair over six two. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Tall motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. That's what my grandma told me. And you never, <laughs> much, much like Phil Belasco, uh, I could be right in your midst, but your focus would be turned. It would be turned. And you would never see me. Never see him. Like He's like, just like that. He's Kaiser Sozi and not uh, Belasco at all. Um, yeah, so this is uh, based on uh, a piece of work by Richard Matheson, uh, famed... Uh, horror writer and collaborator to many many projects um, interestingly enough he toned down the graphic violence and more intense sexual scenes of the novel to the screenplay to give it a more brooding atmosphere um, yeah the book is kind of raw I recommend it but it's it's dirty in places is it dirty bull? it's a little oh, dirty bow, chicka, wow, wow. Um, whilst the film was released in the US with a PG rating uh, in the UK it received an X rating because we will have none of your shenanigans over here, America. But, well, she's talking about orgies. <laughs> Not on X. my watch, Marjorie. <laughs> well, the children will run right out to one. Where'd someone think of the children? Pass me the crumpets. Um, <laughs> Stiff up a lip. <laughs> um, the unsettling tales of Emmerich Belasco's acts of debauchery and evil at Hell House were loosely based on stories involving occultist Alistair Crowley. Surprise, surprise. There's been a whole career of film makers and stories <laughs> all based off the supposed acts of Crowley. Uh, there we go. The most wicked man on the planet. Um, which is my impression that's how Crowley talked it isn't at all uh, yeah so uh, I had not seen this movie in a long time like we're talking we're talking over it we're easily over a decade like oh that's not right I recently got released on Blu-ray in the UK uh, by I want to say the second site that put out and I got a screener 
off the back of this screener, I will buy a copy of it. I had a whole hell of a lot of fun with this movie. Um, Roddy McDowell is pretty phenomenal in it, if I'm, if I'm, you know, just throwing a shout out at the beginning. It's a really interesting tale, which I think is kind of like the Haunted House movie, but cranked up to 11 in the best possible way. It, it falls into a lot of tropes you've seen in a lot of other movies before and since, but I think they handle it in a really interesting way. Um, it is at times particularly vicious to its characters, which I quite like. Um, like generally, it wouldn't, you know, most of these movies don't go for the jugular as, you know, as savagely as this one does at times. Um, I think the there is a really great grasp of kind of old-fashioned ghost stories and kind of modern horror movie you know storytelling which is amalgamated in this one it kind of feels like the perfect balance between the old and the new like almost like this is the this is the gateway in which you know anyone who's coming through horror cinema that wants to do a haunted house movie this is how you want to kind of go um Albeit there are some twists and turns in the story and some reveals which are quite interesting. Um, I will be honest, I think some of the special effects are have not held up and that's 1973 we're talking about so I can kind of let them off with that. You know what I mean? I'm fairly sure. Right, the one almost five decades ago, sure. Yeah, I, I'm fairly sure that when they were making them, the idea of high definition didn't, you know, it wasn't even something that, that popped into the mind. However, at times, uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that I, I felt at times, I felt myself a bit distracted, particularly with the, the ectoplasmic sort of tendricles that come, you know, that, not a great effect. But, like I say, I'm being fair here, let's be fair. Um, I, and I know this is where you're going to disagree with me, I think there's pacing issues in this movie. You're out of your goddamn mind. <laughs> no, I'm not. At about the 40, 45 minute mark, um, there, there, there is a slight, and I know why it's there, but the movie moves at such a pace that they probably have to put it in there, but it just, it kind of slows down a bit. Um, and in a way which I felt was noticeable. Now, I will also say that I am currently watching, on average, about three movies a day. Um, and my preference at the moment is that movies move quick all the way through. Um, and most of them aren't because it's the 70s still and the idea of the slow burn is still there. And this is a lot quicker than a lot of the ones I watched. Um, the same time I was watching The Legend of Hell House. I'll put it that way. But I think there is a bit of pacing issues. Once again, personal opinion. But I think what the movie really benefits from above a lot of them, if I'm taking things like special effects out... Uh, which I think is a fair thing to do. Um, if I'm taking, you know, like, it, it feels a bit dated, but once again, that's in keeping with what they're trying to do. Um, you know, it's of the time period, it's of the genre that they're doing, it, it's allowed to do that. I think the, the movie's strength is not even the story, because the story isn't wholly remarkable from other ghost stories that have been done. The strength of this movie is the casting. I think they have got a really eclectic mix of really great character actors, who all take their roles very seriously and, and bring forward these really, like every single character you meet in this, you feel like, oh, this character is fully realized. You know, I almost feel like I know their backstories before I meet them. 
You know, I, I think that is very, very well done and very difficult to do. Um, if anyone thinks it's an easy thing to do, please watch, please, please, please go and watch the remake of um, of The Haunted. <laughs> where, like, literally I didn't, I didn't know what any of those characters were doing or where they come from at all, except Catherine Zeta-Jones is really quite attractive on the eyes. Um, yeah, I, I, coming back to it, I thought it was a really, really, really good movie and one that I couldn't believe it take me as long to get around to seeing. And it's one that just doesn't, whenever I think about haunted movies, The Legend of Hell House never springs to mind. I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's not always kind of at the forefront for me. Um, because it's one of the better ones, definitely. It's up there to, in my eyes with movies like The Changeling, uh, which is usually one of the top ones that I think about. So yeah, uh, I, I know that you love this movie almost more than you love me, Bo, which is saying a lot. Uh, so tell us. Um, slight correction, I love this movie way more than I love you. Uh, <laughs> That's not a slight correction, it's a major correction. Uh, well, call it what you will. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> now, Legend of Hell House is my second favorite haunted house movie ever, mm. um, right behind The Haunting. And unlike The Haunting, the Legend of Hell House doesn't dick around with a will they won't they on The Haunting. The Legend of Hell House tells you from jump, this house is haunted as fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, there, so and and it ha- it combines so many things I love. It is the old rich person wanting proof of an afterlife, uh, which I think is a cool premise for me. Uh, it is the combination of science and the supernatural to investigate it, mm-hmm. which is another thing I like. And then it's like you said, it's all these great character actors. And I think you underst- undersell the story a little bit here when you say that there's nothing really remarkable going on. I think that it deals with the, the, uh, the idea of the like supernatural erotic in a way that's really interesting, much more so in the book. In the book, it, it gets much more violent. But um, in this, like the uh, uh, the Pamela, not Pamela Franklin. Uh, anyway, the wife. Uh, <laughs> when when she gets all like a little drunk and starts getting sexy and comes on a Roddy McDowell, which by the way, barking up the wrong tree. Um, <laughs> love him. I love Roddy McDowell. Um, <laughs> But uh, when when she's like, you know, the two of us biting and, you know, all that stuff, it's like, fuck, that it's kind of a turn on. But also, yikes, lady, um, I, I think it has some interesting moves and, and like her reaction to it and, and like her, her uh, repulsion at her own behavior is really interesting. Um, I like the fact that we have ghost rape in this movie. Spoilers. Um <laughs> Like, there's this real sexual component to it all that I, I think is really interesting. Plus, another thing that, that's hard to do in ghost movies, uh, it's a problem that I've, I've thought about a lot uh, because I've always wanted to do a haunted house movie. Um, but you have to have a good cause of the haunting, mm-hmm. which this movie does in spades, and you have to pay it off one way or the other. And you can have that kind of haunting payoff where it's like, we're just getting out of the house and, and we're lucky to be alive. Or you do what this movie does, which is like, we're going to answer. We're going to solve the riddle yeah, yeah. of this haunting. 
And it does so, I think, in a really clever way, like all the, you know, extremities and terminations, like all that stuff. I think this has a super strong script. And uh, yeah, I love it. Like I said, if you're a Haunted House fan, if you like Haunted House movies and have never seen The Legend of Hell House, I, it's, it is so good. I watch it every year around Halloween. It is, it is one of my all-time favorite horror films. Uh, from a, a personal preference point of view, um, and it, it's it's kind of my comfort food. Like, if I don't know what to watch, I can watch Legend of Hell House and be fine. Very nice, very nice. Right, which means if my math is is usually pretty bad as well, I think we only have one more movie to talk about. That's correct, and it's Theater of Blood. Yeah. <laughs> which means we get to hear both Vincent Price impression again, which is pretty amazing. Go for it. Uh, you want me to just start talking? Just, like just that? anything, anything you like gotta, that. I, I, I don't work like that, Duncan. It's right, got to come right, natural. Right, right, right. Vincent Price is giving me the specials at a Denny's. No. <laughs> you want moons over my hammy? <laughs> Every sentence that he starts with starts with a ah. <laughs> it's, it's a hair away from Edward G. Robinson. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> oh dear, theater. Of and blood. I don't have the chops to go from like the high of Vincent Price to the low, you know, because that's like real Vincent Price prose. Yeah, can do that, and I'm cool. not. I can do the full spectrum of Price. And... Right. No, oh, you know when he gets gets down and gets a little yeah. intimate with yeah. you. The highs and lows, almost like the Price is Right bowl. Boo, boo that man. <laughs> but weeks. yes, so Theater of Blood. Yes. AKA, hey, remember Dr. Fibes? <laughs> well, this is what we talked about. Like, when we talked about um, Dr. Fibes, I said, you know, that this was something he almost got typecast with. And then in the previous episode, me and Doug were talking about uh, Fibes Rises again and we were saying, yeah, it's a good movie. It's not as good as the original Dr. Fibes. Um, you know, and because of that, you didn't get the trilogy, you know, the, the, the third part of the trilogy. But if you were craving that third part of the trilogy, Theatre of Blood comes out and Theatre of Blood is fucking awesome. Like, I love this. It's potentially my favourite Price movie ever. It's up there, definitely. It, it ranked very high on my, uh, my my top 10 Vincent Price uh, versus Christopher Lee ones. I think this was either second or third, I think, um, behind Witchfinder General, which I think is just as Price being so malevolent. It's, uh, it's actually scary in that movie. Uh, Theatre of Blood uh, stars it's a, it's a who's who of British cinema at the time so we've got Vincent Price obviously the American uh, uh, <laughs> Stannis Baratheon <laughs> Diana Reg Ian Henry uh, Harry Andrews Lady Tyrell <laughs> the, like there's a lot of Game of Thrones in Theatre of Blood it turns out yeah it turns out just a bit um but yeah, we've got Dennis uh, Price, uh, Arthur Lowe, just like a lot of them. A Shakespearean actor, this is a synopsis, uh, takes poetic revenge on the critics who denied him his recognition. Um, Vincent Price considered it like his personal favourite of all his films, which speaks a lot when Vincent Price did act in over 100 movies uh, and God knows how much on the stage as well. Um, so yeah, he... he 
he thoroughly loved this one and you can tell why he's having a ball making this movie he's having so much fun this is an actor that is very familiar with Shakespeare out with the role so the fact he's getting to encompass all the greats in one movie um, and the fact that the deaths are so over the top and so elaborate um, and the, like one of my favourite things of all time is uh, is the <laughs> Is Vincent Price as the seventies hairstylist, which is <laughs> it's pretty wonderful. It's pretty uh, amazing. It's just this movie has its heart in the right place, and it it wants to titillate, it wants to disgust, and it wants to make you laugh all the way through it, and it does it in perfect balance. This is so difficult to do in a movie nails it. The director, Douglas Hickoks, did very little in the way of movies, um, but by God did he nail this one to the fucking board. Uh, what do you think of Theatre of Blood? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think it is goes back to just me making noises at you. It's something uh, about you making noises. We found my weakness. The weakness is Paul just making noises. Uh, we'll just eventually do a podcast that's just me whacking at you or something. Um, I think Theater of Blood is super fun. I, I like uh, I like Diana Rigg as spoilers. Uh, the the Afroed henchman mm-hmm. um i think it is really fun and wonderful and like the reveal of it it's like well no duh you look like diana rigg has very specific cheekbones and no matter how many mustaches you put on that it's still diana rigg under uh a mustache um at any rate um yeah it's it's really funny you get to see vincent price kind of hamming it up uh, and doing some Shakespeare along the way, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it's very knowingly silly at times. Like when uh, he doesn't get the critics award and just marches outside, and it's just like no to be or not to be, <laughs> and like just throws himself off the side. It's just kind of wonderful. Like uh, when he's feeding the critic his dog, and the critic breaks the you know the third wall by addressing the audience. I yeah. mean, this movie knows exactly what it's doing. Yeah, it's... And at, at the end of the day, it's also this kind of backhanded complaint about critics. Yeah. And, and the, the power that they can wield and so forth. Um, yeah, it's really bizarre. And, it, you know, Stannis Baratheon is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that's not a plus or minus. But I, as I was watching, I was like... I, you know, like I'd seen this movie a long time ago, pre Game of Thrones, and it just never occurred to me that was the same dude. Yeah. Uh, but and he looks pretty much the same. Same, he's a vampire, clearly. Yeah, he's <laughs> very, very definitely a vampire. Um, but yeah, the, no, Theater of Blood is one of those movies that is a great Sunday afternoon, kick back in the recliner, put some Twizzlers on your chest for good measure. <laughs> Just keep them handy and uh, enjoy yourself some theater of blood. It's it's a, a really, really good time. Fantastic. Right. That's 10 movies discussed. Uh, we have talked about The Exorcist, The Legend of Hell House, The Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, 
Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural, Sisters, The Crazies, Scream, Blackula Scream, Theatre of Blood and Torso. This is the point where myself and my guest will take a short break. You're going to hear promos for shows that I love. You're going to a small musical interlude to carry us through. And when we return, myself and Bo will be counting down, disregarding, eliminating movies until we are left with two representing 1973 to go on to the round table. We will be back, ladies and gentlemen, right after this. Hello. You've heard of Honest Movie Trailers, right? This is an honest podcast promo. I'm not going to fill it with sound effects and explosions and quotes from movies and all that kind of stuff, because, hey, I wouldn't want to build up your hopes on the production values of what you might actually get if you download our silly little podcast. Instead, I'm just going to put in a highly inappropriate in-joke that you won't get unless you listen to the show. The Little Pod of Horrors. The best idea since premarital sex on Halloween. Like I said, pussy's back on the table. Find us on simplysyndicated.com and on iTunes. If you dare.
and welcome back. So we have. Uh, I'm going to go back to these ten movies again, just for importance, and to pad out an already long episode. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, like there's a producer making the stretch motion somewhere. <laughs> it's under five hours. <laughs> you gotta give me more. Give me more bull. Give me more bull. Um, so, as for some reason, it's Christopher Walken. Um, he doesn't want more cowbell, he wants more bull. Um, right. we, uh, we discussed The Exorcist, The Legend of Hell House, The Wicker Man. Don't look now. Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. Sisters, The Crazies, Scream Blackula, Scream Theatre of Blood and Corso. Right, bull, let's start eliminating here. What is the first movie you would like to eliminate from the list? I'll tell you what, I'm going to give up one of my own. Oh. That's right. I'm going to give up uh, Lamora, A Child's Tale of the Supernatural. I don't think it goes to the top two, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I think it totally deserves to be on this list, and I'm glad we talked about it. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I am going to swing in with uh, Scream, Blackula Scream. I think it's a ton of fun. Um... To me, doesn't really do anything which makes it hugely notable in terms of... It builds on something that was already done, um, of a character that was already out in a movie that was already surprisingly successful. And whilst they do take it in a more kind of over-the-top way, I don't necessarily think that automatically makes it one of the greatest horror movies of the year. Uh, yep. Um, uh, I think <laughs> Theater of Blood ah. isn't gonna cut it. Curses! Um, <laughs> um <laughs> now I'm gonna be doing that all day. God damn it. Yeah, I, I, I uh, <laughs> um, I, I will say Ooh, eggs. <laughs> I like just all day long. What's in the refrigerator? <laughs> Bada! Um, so. <laughs> and maybe some bacon. Ooh. All right. <laughs> that's, that's me going low. All right. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, Theater of Blood's really good. Everyone should see it. Not going to hang with what's on this list. Agreed. And with that, main Torso, I think Torso can come out. I think Torso is, has two very interesting parts that are done really well, but the whole product um, doesn't make it. It doesn't make it the greatest slasher that's ever made, or doesn't make it the greatest Jallo um, that's ever done either. It's an interesting entry into the whole Jally subgenre, but it's certainly not one of the best. And certainly, we have discussed better ones thus far um, on on the lists that we've covered through. So um, that's my pick to go. If there's no objections. No, no, I agree with that. I'm, I'm looking at what's left, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to decide where the fight's gonna be. Um, be bold. Have, no, I, all right. I, I don't, I don't think the Wicker Man makes it. Um, I would agree. Yeah, mm, Wicker right. Man was not in my. Wicker Man surprisingly was not in my top three. So. I expected you to fight more for your little fairy movie about hip hippies. <laughs> um. I love the Wicker Man, and I've said it many times before. The Wicker <laughs> Man, 
The Wicker Man, I think, is one of... It's a very, very important movie, and I think... <clears throat> in terms of even the genre of, like, folk horror, which was huge in the UK for a couple of years, but it was one of those things where people really started... That's what the 70s is really exciting because it started just looking at different ways to tell horror stories and and you know that the fact that they they chose to do a movie like that at the time um, in any other circumstance this would be a grubby little movie that would not have transcended to be one of the most important horror films ever made but it did I think it speaks volumes about it however on this list um, you know 73 ain't no slouch and the Wicker Man does have a bit of drag in the middle, um, and that drag in the middle, unfortunately, is what, what doesn't bring it to the top three for me. So yeah, I will, I will, I will let that one go, um, and I will put forward the Crazies because the Crazies has a pacing issue as well for me. And whilst I really enjoy it, I think we've already acknowledged some of the acting is a bit ropey. Um, the story's super interesting, and I think it's directed really, really well. I think that kind of almost. There's a sense of realism about it, which I think works really, really well. Um, but it it has it has a bit of lag, um, and yeah, for that for that reason, I would remove it. Bo, all right. Is that a yes? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Right, which I... brings us to I believe that gives us four, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, so the four that, movies... That, that, that's why I'm distracted. <laughs> I'm looking at this list of four movies, uh, and... Mm. <laughs> right. There are uh, some tough calls here. There are some tough calls, but I think one of them is really easy. So the four movies we've got are The Exorcist, The Legend of Hell House, Don't Look Now, and Sisters. I would say... Uh, I think we're pretty much already all but said it on the show here. I think both of us are agreeing The Exorcist goes through. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're talking about n the number two spot. Uh, the Exorcist is undeniably the finest horror film of 1973, <laughs> and maybe ever. Maybe ever, right? So so we don't need to worry about that one. That one's out of consideration, which leaves us yeah. The Legend of Hell House, Don't Look Now, and Sisters. Now, this is where it's going to get awkward, right? Because I kind of know where you're going, right? I, 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 I kind of know where you're going. And I don't agree. <laughs> like, if I was to order the remaining one, the one that I think you would pick as number two would be the the bottom of the pile for me. Um, I I think my pet. Oh, let me let me just put my cards on the table, both of you. Could. Twist my arm and force me at gunpoint. Why did you bring a gun to a podcast? Put the gun down, Bo. It's only a game. I will not. I, I always have a gun. I'm a, I'm an American, Duncan. <laughs> God, God damn it! God damn it! No. They, you buy an apple pie, they give you a gun. They give you. I've seen Bowling for Columbine. I know how it works. You say good morning to someone and they give you a gun. Uh, howdy. Or shoot you. Or, or shoot you. <laughs> I mean, that's why it's rolling the dice. But yeah, the, the order, the order for me, um, in in reverse order, is the Legend of Hell House, Sisters, and then Don't Look Now. I would put Don't Look Now through. Um, I think you already knew that. Before we start, no, 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 no. I actually thought Wicker Man was gonna be your number two. No, 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 no. Don't let now's better. It's like noticeably better. So I got a feeling that the Legend of Hell House is your number two pick. I all right, look. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's if that's the case, then we're saying that neither one of us are saying that Sisters is in contention for number two, and then Sisters can be removed. I don't. 
speak for me, Duncan. <laughs> I can speak myself. I can tell you myself. I actually agree with most of that. I think uh, I think Legend of Hell House is my personal. That like that is the movie that I will go back to before I go back to what our number two film is probably going to be. Right. Uh, I I find it to be more entertaining. I think The Legend of Hell House is, like I said, my second favorite haunted house movie movie ever. And it, you catch me on the right day, maybe number one. See, I, I, need, um, to, I need to watch The Changeling again because The Changeling's always been like my. It's right up there for me. Um, way way bigger pacing problems in The Changeling than there are in yeah, in Hell House. I'm, I'm not seen. I've not seen The Changeling in years, and I'm really tempted. To, to, but it does have George C. Scott. It's pretty so. amazing. Um, yeah. Joshua! Joshua! <laughs> Get in here, Trish! I said, what are those. You know what it is? I think haunted house movies is a subgenre I just don't watch a lot of at all. And I, I don't know why, because when I was younger, that's what I watched. You well, were more likely. Yeah, like when you're younger, all the movies you watch are ghost movies. Your parents will let you watch a ghost movie before they'll let you watch a serial killing rapist movie, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and it's, it's they're just you know what I mean. I I never go back and watch them. I think to me that I think that's why like when I watched Oculus recently, we, we were raving about it so much. But the reason I was like so happy is I was like that. You know, this is a movie from a genre that I don't really watch. That I don't pay a lot of attention to. That I think, you know, it's, it's a really good addition to that. You know, one of the better ones that I've seen in a long time. And then coming back and watching Legend of Hell House, I mean, yeah, I I, I say that I I personally think there's there's some pacing issues. That doesn't take away from the fact that I think it's a great movie. Um, I think the cast it was the cast that kept getting me. It was like that. Everyone is just on their A game like everyone is just doing everything right in this movie and let's be honest that you, that shouldn't necessarily when you're dealing with like when you're on the grand scheme of things that's what actors are paid to do <laughs> actors are paid to act well um, so I shouldn't feel like I had to, I have to single that out but the 70s is still that weird time period where you're getting movies like Last House on the Left which are really grubby really important movies but the acting isn't great um, and when you watch this one the acting is really 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 good and coupled with the story which I, once again I think and I know I said uh, the, that's I'm saying it falls into tropes that are established now a lot of those tropes come after this movie as well as come before this movie so this movie is putting spins on things which are then taken forward and you are right that it, it deals with the uh, kind of the eroticism of of the, the the ghosts or the haunting in this movie, which isn't really handled elsewhere, um, and I've never read the novel, and I'm quite keen to because you've said it's kinky, and that makes me want to read it. Um, but at the same time, though, you're right; they, they do go back in to find out what the haunting's about to solve, you know, to solve the mystery, etc. If I'm honest, and don't get upset, um, that reveal is a bit dumb to me. <laughs> Sorry. It's like, oh, he's in a lead room. Um, but it fits the story, so I don't mind it. Um, I think it's a great movie. I just think it's it's up against, to me, like we're saying The Exorcist is, you know, it's the pinnacle, arguably the pinnacle of horror cinema, right? 
since The Exorcist, everyone who's wanted to make a horror movie has wanted to create the atmosphere, environment, and terror in its audience that The Exorcist did. Every every horror filmmaker worth his salt wants that. They may claim they don't. <laughs> they may claim that they're, no, what I'm going for is a, you know, a subvergence of, you know, no, 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 no. What you want is to terrify your audience, become um, culturally important to the stage that people are talking about it decades later. That's what you want, Mr. Filmmaker, right? And The Exorcist has that in spades. And whilst Don't Look Now doesn't have the impact on that level, I think it has the same connection in terms of transcending the movie into pop culture. I think the performances are incredible. I think the story is weighted. And you are right, maybe after watching the movie, with the mystery being gone, it becomes less of a horror movie. But I would argue that the grief that parents experience of losing a child and trying to function after it is its own horror in itself and seeing the dynamic of those characters and like you see it is so obvious that one of them is just purely throwing themselves into their work and is in complete denial of everything um, and the other one doesn't really know how to cope um, I think that is tremendously fascinating um, and I don't know why I went in that diatribe at all. I started it with purpose. I've lost my, my, my train well, of thought. you're a narcissist, Duncan. That's why. Um... <laughs> if, uh, after hours of recording with you, Duncan, I can tell you what your problem is, sir. <laughs> I have a list uh, <laughs> of all the spectrum disorders that you have uh, exhibited. Um, but Sisters isn't a slouch either. I think Sisters yeah. is a really, really cool movie, and I think it doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Yeah, I, so I think we're ultimately coming down in the on, in the same place. I thought you were going to put up a much bigger fight for Wicker Man. I agree Legend of Hell House doesn't hang here. I just love it. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's like, you know, if we got to the year Fright Night oh, uh, oh. came out, it would be like, well, Fright Night is clearly the best movie of that or any year, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's just me. I get that. I but I think you're right. I think I think Sisters is a lock at number three. I think I think a, a different person could argue Sisters at number two better than I could. I just think Don't Look Now. I to me the Exorcist and Don't Look Now is one of those situations of like, well, if those were the two best movies of the 70s in general, I'm kind of okay with that too. Yeah, there's, there's, not, there's not one decade thus far that I've done recordings for where the top two have been the caliber of those two movies. I mean, if you came in, if you came in, like a, like, like here's a, here's a round table situation and you had to pull two movies to come in as your representatives of the best horror movies in the 1970s and you put down on the table The Exorcist and Don't Look Now everyone else would say oh fuck um, yeah, you know what I mean yeah I, I, yeah, I think I think when we get to our round table eventually mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'll, I'm calling it right now those <laughs> one uh, not just one of those two movies both of those movies could go yeah yeah. So, but big shout out to sisters. You fucked up by putting out sisters in 1973. <laughs> Brian De Palma. 
He just weighed off a year. I, right. This is his secret regret, knowing that he's <laughs> he's not making our list. And it's because he just couldn't wait a year. He just couldn't. He just couldn't wait. He couldn't let it lie. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think like hopefully from people people listening to this, I know the, the thing is that I, I know that they're. You know what? What's really funny is I know. I know there are a lot of people that have seen Sisters. I know there's a lot of people that haven't, and I'm I'm excited to hear what people say when they see that movie and hopefully post it on the page. I know a lot of the listeners are going through the movies on the list when I'm posting them in advance of the recordings um, and releases of the the episode. So hopefully people are going to check that out. But what's really interesting for me is I know tons of people that don't like Don't Look Now. And I equally know a lot of people that think The Exorcist is overrated as much as that blows my mind. You know, well, both of yeah, both of those points of view are simply incorrect. Yeah, and like I, I know, I know plenty of people that think that way. Um, but I think that you could not. To me, is is almost impossible to argue that The Exorcist isn't like the perfect horror movie. You know what I mean? Like, is everything that anyone that wants to make a horror movie, like, it's the template. The, the almost unattainable template of how to make a horror movie because no one has been this is the pinnacle of possession movies like no one has ever been able to get even remotely close to the exorcist without like fundamentally changing yeah. everything about it like no one has ever been able and you would think on paper it should be really easy someone gets possessed priest comes in does an exorcism bad shit happens uh, and you know person that's possessed is saved at the end the end you, on paper that seems really easy and no one's got fucking close to it like at all insane insane uh, and yeah. I also think I also think when it comes to to grief and loss and I, once again I'm speaking with a renewed sense of of a uh, like a, a renewed sense because I'm, I'm now seeing a movie from a different position than I've seen before but um I don't think there's many movies that I've seen that hand, you know, that show grief as not only something that the characters hang around with, but the atmosphere and tone of an entire movie. Like Don't Look Now, I've, I, I can't think of any that that do it that way. Um, yeah, I, you have to go to something like Ordinary People. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which it, you know, it is almost. It's handled in a very dignified way, but it's it's not a melodramatic movie, but even that is more melodramatic than Don't yeah. Look Now. Yeah. And I don't have kids, Duncan, but you know uh, I have worked with the uh, falsely accused blind women psychics of America for some time <laughs> in our sister chapter in Italy. Uh, I mean, this was a movie that, that really struck a chord there, as you would imagine. Um, it's there's, very niche. There's so and many. It's, <laughs> like, there's a great. I was watching. Did you watch any of the special features on the Criterion Blu-ray? Uh, no, actually, not yet. I really you should, should. You should totally break them out because there's this great bit where um, one of the features is um, a discussion between uh, the scriptwriters. I think it's the cinematographer Donald Sutherland and um, Julie Christie. Like separate interviews, but they're all interspliced into. It's like about a half an hour documentary. Uh, feature thing uh, Donald Sutherland says that when they first approached him for the role and stuff like that he sat down with Nick Rose and was like that he said he only took the role because he was really interested in you know 
precognizance and you know psychic ability and stuff it was something that fascinated him and the the fact that the movie hints all the way through it that you know Donald Sutherland has you know second sight but you know for whatever reason pushes it down and doesn't want to you know when he does use it in the movie it leads to you know him discovering his daughter's dead um, right well it's more denial it's denial of his own yeah ability yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but what he says is that he he, he basically said to Nicholas Rogie was like that he's like he said we you know spoke for for you know, many many occasions when I was like that to Nick I was like listen I just don't see my you know I, I think if my character had this ability he would be able to see his death coming and he would avoid it you know I think you know I think we should change the ending you know I don't think my character uh, and he said they had many many conversations on that and eventually Nicholas Rogue looked at him and said do you want to work in the movie or not <laughs> And Donald Sutherland said, after that point, I understood as an actor that my role is basically to work on screen. It's not to question the director. The director is there to get, I can put forward ideas, but ultimately I do what the director wants. Um, which is, Nick Rose, I can just imagine the patience weird and thin. is like that. This is my vision, not yours, Donald. Right. Well, particularly because he's such a, like, particular director. Yes. And, yeah. and just it, it's that hitchcock thing of just like shut up meat puppet and say the words on the page <laughs> yeah. and stand where i tell you to <laughs> and we're gonna be fine thing is as right. well like about the 70s like donald sutherland has two of my favorite roles in in 70s horror cinema one being in don't look now another one being an in invasion of the body snatchers um, oh yeah you know where I think he, at that time he's just an actor who's just phenomenal, um, and only recently did we find out. Although he denies, but we'll never know. But we'll never know that the sex scene is not. You know, it didn't actually. It wasn't him fucking on camera. Um, although the rumors persist to this day. Um, I you, mean, if not, it's pretty close. <laughs> it's pretty close. A tip may have went in. Um, that's, <laughs> it's it's yeah. uh, it, I mean, it's a really powerful scene though, and not not just because it's like look they're doing it. I mean, it's one of those things where it is undig it, it's an undignified sex scene in the sense that it's just a sex scene. Yeah, it's the first it scene they not... shot as well in the movie. And it was, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, it was the the first one because Nicholas Rose wanted out of the way, and it was one that he put in at the last minute. It wasn't in the original script at all. It, I think it's important for this. I mean, like that's really the one of those points of attempted connection between those characters yeah. that you see that there is real love there. Yeah, it's just it's just all broken right now, you know. And yeah, it's such a it is a very sad, sad movie. Yeah, it's almost an incredibly sad movie, and uh, yeah, and we've we've joked and laughed all the way through it. Um, <laughs> I've got a lot of drowned children jokes that I, I kept pocketed uh, in hopes that we would keep it dignified. Yeah, well, we'll keep them for the outtakes. Uh, right, so there we go. So representing it 19... Bo, I'm just thinking here, like, like we've talked 20 movies now, me and you. Uh-huh. And um, like, the, the movies that have come from your shows um, are The Devils, Daughters of Darkness, The Exorcist, and Don't Look Now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Mic drop. Uh, you know, it's, it's just fucking nuts, man. Uh huh. And that's just two years out of the ten 
that are getting discussed and so many more heavy hands yet to come man, taking honestly. all comers duncan <laughs> i got my deck stacked i got four aces here <laughs> Right, Come so at yeah. me, Doug. <laughs> what you got? 1972 ain't got shit on me. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, so good. It's so good. Oh, yeah. So good. moving forward, representing 1973, The Exorcist in Don't Look Now. Uh, big thanks to my guest, Bo Ransdell. He is on some shows he talked about the last time he was on. It is only right after talking about other things he gets the opportunity to talk about those things as well. Bo, tell us your shows uh, where people can listen to them. Uh, legionpodcasts.com is where you can find all the stuff uh, it's the Twin Peaks stuff that Duncan and I are doing uh, there's Horror Hangover, there's Hero Hero Go Show there's the Shodcast, that's uh, all the stuff I'm on personally and uh, and then of course there's a bunch of other shows that you should check out uh, and, and almost too many to mention because literally there are too many to mention <laughs> uh, but go, go check it out <laughs> Check out the front page, and you will always see the latest shows, and uh, and you can dip in and uh, sample a lot of tasty horror treats uh, right there on the website. Fantastic. Right, I'm taking my final break of this show. Bo's going to be back, though, uh, on the rim table, which is in a fair few weeks' time, but... I almost, I can almost guarantee with with a great deal of certainty that show is going to be off the fucking chain. Um, so, would you like to say goodbye to our listeners for now, Bo? Yeah. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs> right, and I'm going to be back to close out the show right after this. You're listening to the podcast under the stairs. And you've been listening to the podcast Under the Stairs. This has been episode 116, where we've counted down the top 10 best horror movies of 1973, carrying forward The Exorcist and Don't Look Now to the final round table in a few weeks' time. I'd like to thank my guest, Bo Ransdell, for joining me and the fantastic discussions about some truly fantastic horror movies the lists just keep getting harder and harder and I actually thought there would be more arguments there at the end and I'm surprised there wasn't it's funny how you get a feeling for where you think your guest is going to go and the guests have a feeling of where they think you're going to go um, as a, a as a, a choice um, it turns out that I I threw my guest a little bit with my my undying devotion to don't look now um, as opposed to, to jumping on the, the Wicker Man bandwagon which like I say at this stage there are no losers, I love the Wicker Man purely, uh, I just think Don't Look Now is a better movie, so there we go um, so yeah, uh, on the next episode of the podcast Under the Stairs which should be dropping on Thursday tentatively we are saying you're going to hear the next Baz V Horror episode, that's right this week it's all about the heavy hitters and the Baz will be returning with Baz V the Masters of Horror episode 1 aka Baz V Takashi Miki where he looks at one missed call and audition those uh, reviews hopefully will be in the bag edited and down for Thursday and you will be able to hear them then for if for, you know, in the likely event that they don't happen uh, you have another episode of the podcast under the stairs anyway it'll be 1973 on the countdown but I am almost 97.8 95% confident it's going to be Baz v Takashi Miki and I'm telling you right now 
you better strap yourselves in for that one because we recorded one missed call and it's one of my favourite funny reviews ever. It's uh, it's hilarious, so don't do anything that involves concentration, um, heavy machinery, driving at the gym. Try and listen to it in a, a safe space. Imagine yourself as the, the main character from Final Destination 1 but in Final Destination 2 when he's in that room which is all padded and stuff. That's how you should listen to Baz v Takashi Miki. And also at the end of this episode, <clears throat> I'd like to give a special shout out um, to, uh, I don't know if we've actually mentioned it on the show, we'll definitely mention it on the Baz v Takashi Miki show, but a big shout out to Scott and Liam versus Evil, um, who are these fantastic Glaswegian horror podcasters that myself and the Baz are going to go up against in a very special podcast battle um, at the Glasgow Horror Festival, which is coming on the 4th and 5th of November. Um, in Glasgow at the Classic Grand. Uh, Popcorn Horror putting it on. I did their event last year. I was on one of the panels and I've been delighted that we've been asked to go back. And even more delighted that we're getting an opportunity to share the stage with a, a fantastic group of podcasters. Uh, Scott and Liam have a fantastic podcast. You need to go and check it out. It's a ton of fun. There are our people, if you know what I mean. Our sort of people. And if you can't get enough of uh, Phil Mouse Scott's talking about horror movies, check out their show for reals. Right, um, now that i plugged their show, it's time to plug my show. Uh, please check out the podcast Under the Stairs on Apple Podcasts. And if you are over there checking out on that medium, please subscribe. That way you get the shows as and when they drop and uh, you get access to the entire back catalogue. Also, rate and reviews over there. It's hugely important to this show. Um, the more ratings we get, the higher up the iTunes charts were pushed for more people to find the show. Uh, but the reviews are really important. They're a way for people that are checking out the show to see what people actually think of what we do. The reviews over there have been fantastic thus far, but I know there's plenty of people out there that listen to the show that haven't done one yet. Please, please, please do it. Take seconds for you to do it. It doesn't cost you anything. It means the world and it helped promote the show for us and um, you can also check out the show on soundcloud stitcher smart radio TuneIn, and google play please check out our facebook group page facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash tputzcast visit our website tputzcast.com where at the bottom of the home page you'll be able to find a form that you can sign in to become part of our newsletter uh, we do competitions every couple of weeks in our newsletter so you can become part of that um, also, I've recently dropped a bonus episode for the Challenge Teapots Movie Club for August. Uh, please listen to that episode. It dropped a couple of days ago and it'll tell you what the movie is. In the case of this one, 2007 Time Crimes. Um, that you can go away and check out and submit your review to podcastunderthestairs at gmail.com. Interact with us on our twin prongs of social media sexiness, admin by the Baz on Twitter and Instagram. Both of them can be found at TputzCast over there. And I've exhausted myself of everything I want to say. This has been a fantastic episode and I want to thank everyone who's enjoying this run of shows. Uh, the feedback on the Facebook group page has been phenomenal and the download numbers have been eye-watering. Uh, a lot of people getting behind this series of shows and I can't thank you enough for it. Every single one of you is out there. Right, I'm going to go. Uh, this is a, a week of double shows. In fact, the next couple of weeks are going to be weeks of double shows, so strap yourselves in. Uh, but until I speak to you, which will be on Thursday, please take care of yourselves, wherever you are, whatever the time zone is, and whatever you're up to out there in this big bad world. This is Duncan McLeish broadcasting live from Under the Stairs, signing off.
what is best. Gotta make the fist and be.